time and listen to my story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. Then one day he was shooting at some food, and up from the ground came a bubbling crude oil that is black gold, Texas tea. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. Kid folks said, Jed, move away from there. Said California is a place he ought to be, so they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly Hills. That is. Swimming pools, movie stars. Well, now it's time to say goodbye to Jed and all his kin. And they would like to thank you folks for kindly dropping in. You're all invited back again to this locality to have a heap and help another hospitality. Hillbilly, that is. Set a spell. Take your shoes off. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Pull up a chair. I think you better bring a pack of snacks, maybe a couple of bottles of water, and let's buckle in and get through this thing. What we're really talking about, I always try to find the um, terms that they themselves coin for these incidents, right? And there's a woman named Naomi Klein, and I have a clip from her that will play later, and she, um, she pretty much nailed it. Of course, she's one of them, right? But anyways... Um, I think what we're looking at is called disaster economics. And in the closing, I'll be talking about what is next, and it isn't the movie business. <laughs> it's about, um, well, how they're creating um, babies and um, why um, it's pretty disturbing. Uh, because I wondered for years, how did we get so surrounded? Well, lots of reasons. Can't get into it this second. A little bit tired today. So anyway, so let's start off here. I think what they're playing is the, I'm just going to go over some general stuff because I have another section here that will follow this, I believe, that talks about other random news, but this is pretty significant stuff because I think what they're doing is positioning Biden as a um, senile old loser, right? Well, he could have Alzheimer's or something like that because they do get Alzheimer's from those hormones they're all gobbling down. So anyways, Jill Biden started off by um, insulting the Mexicans, talking about tacos, and um she made a recent uh, speech at a Democratic fundraiser, and I'll quote her. Speaking of the president, she said, He's just had so many things thrown his way. Who could have ever thought about what happened with the Supreme Court ruling in Roe versus Wade? Well, maybe we saw it coming, but still, we didn't believe it. The gun violence in this country is absolutely appalling. We didn't see the war in Ukraine coming. And Joe Biden on Thursday, this is Friday the 22nd of July that I'm recording this, Joe, Joe Biden proposed yesterday to unveil $37 billion proposal for fighting, I, I can't believe that's 30, I'll have to look at that. Anyway, he, he proposed this big thing for fighting crime. And you're wondering, why am I talking about crime? Well, in the rando news segment that will show up, there was a just a big shooting that happened in Denver, Colorado, where the police actually fired into a crowd of people. So, yeah, be careful out there, kids. So anyway, so um, to fight crime, including funding to help U.S. police departments hire and train an additional 100,000 officers over a five-year period. 
the president's safer america plan is part of his proposed twenty twenty three budget and would require a green light from congress cnn reports as well as the additional officers it re reportedly included the launch of a fifteen billion dollar grant so i guess that's thirty seven billion is probably a true amount fifteen billion dollar grant initiative for states and localities to assist them in preventing violent offenses and to ease the burden on police officers by identifying nonviolent situations that may merit a public health response or other response. So they want to pull the burden off the cops and send social workers out on calls. Well, all sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Um, it would also place an additional $5 billion in community-based violence intervention initiatives and include additional common sense steps that would aim to stop the spread of guns, according to CNN. Biden's proposal also requests more funding for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. He is pushing Congress to ban assault weapons and bolster background checks for firearms. And then um, I have a clip that I'll play about Joe Biden because he made a big speech this week and the speech was to talk about this Green New Deal and I'm going to play that at the end of all these segments because it really speaks, just listen to it for yourself, okay? But during that speech he sparked speculation about his health. That, that speech was Wednesday, today's Thursday, um, in Massachusetts <clears throat> and he made this statement, he said, that's why I and so damn many other people I grew up with have cancer. And why can, for the longest time, Delaware and have cancer and why? For the longest time, Delaware has the highest cancer rate in the nation. Well, people thought he was referring to himself having cancer, but supposedly had skin cancer. But remember, cancer is also pretty well tracked to hormones and stuff. Okay, also in the news, the Ford Motor Company is getting ready to eliminate up to 8,000 jobs in the coming weeks to help fund its push for intellectual vehicles. And this all becomes, scientists have warned, scientists come under the Vatican group. Scientists have warned we, we would see more frequent and more devastating floods in the future due to global warming. And in this show, I will be talking about, I tracked down, who invented this carbon footprint scam, okay? You have to decide for yourself. My view is, and I'll cover it more in the closing, my view is, is that, uh, well, my view is, is that it's all a scam, this global warming, this whole Green New Deal, but think for yourself. Anyway, so, um, <clears throat> in one of the segments, um, I'm talking about the Hetch Hetchy, and I can't I can't leave that place yet for some reason. But anyway, so um, I think Hetch Hetchy was about the San Francisco earthquake and the um, Bank of Italy to become Bank of America. That deal. And go look for that show. I'm not going to get into it now. But anyway, so yeah, I talk about Hetch Hetchy, and just so I don't add confusion, in one segment I talk about uh, the history of Hetch Hetchy and how they stole it. It was it was theft. Okay. Uh, let's call a spade a spade. So anyway, so um, I talk about that, and then I also talk about a man named John Muir. John Muir, M-U-I-R, was a famous person who started the Sierra Club, which came out of Hetch Hetchy, so just so there's not any confusion there. 
I have lists of all the oil disasters and the um, different things that have been connected to oil and the deaths of the death rate that corresponds with oil. And one thing I didn't include was the um, I just did um, oil disasters in this country, very suspicious oil disasters, I might say. But anyway, so I didn't talk about the worst oil disaster in history. And it wasn't on the, the list I read in the show because it happened in the Persian Gulf and I had been focused on the United States. So the worst spill in history is the Gulf War oil spill, which spewed an estimated 8 million barrels of oil into the Persian Gulf after Iraq forces opened valves of oil wells and pipelines as they retreated from Kuwait in 1991. The oil slick reached a maximum of 101 miles, 101 by 42 miles, and was five inches thick. So yeah, I think that uh, well, it's all about oil, right? So uh, I'm bringing up the worst one because it was done by the people from this country. <laughs> I wanted to include it in the overall criminal list. Okay, another thing that's going to be coming out of this, I think part of what's going on is. Um, the severe heats that the whole world is going under right now, well, that's all caused by HARP. Um, but I think the reason they're creating all this extreme heat is to enforce this message that global warming is really real. Well, sure, the Earth is heating up, but they're the ones heating it up, right? See what I mean? And this Green New Deal was a completely cooked up deal. So, yeah, heat is a really big factor. And heat is also a way to get a bunch of people murdered, really, because... Um, just, I'm, I can't go into it all because I don't have the time, but just as one example, okay, as many as 500 homeless people died in, a, in around Phoenix, Arizona during the first half of 2022. Almost 10% of deaths due to homicide, and a lot of them were due to heat-related incidents, okay? Part of how this whole system works, and I really haven't... Uh, gotten to it, so I'll get to it right now. Um, there's this thing they do, and it's called manufacturing of consent, okay? And what it is, let me explain it to you. People related to Norm Chomsky, and him and his buddy Lippmann were the first, uh, they claimed that the first world war, they talked about the first world war and manufactured consent, okay? Within while the manufacture of consent is an idea now mostly associated with Noam Chomsky, famous Jew, the phrase was actually coined by the U.S. journalist and writer Walter Lippmann in his influential book, Public Opinion, Public Opinion 1922, a fact that Chomsky and his co-writer readily acknowledged. Lippmann contended that because the world is too complex for any individual to comprehend, a strong society needs people and institutions specialized in collecting data and creating the most accurate interpretation of re reality possible. When used properly, this information should allow decision makers to manufacture consent in the public interest. So what they do is they come up with these ideas and then they send us our way to get us to agree to this. Well, I don't think there's any bigger case of manufactured consent than this whole deal. Littman identifies how public opinion is instead largely forged by political elites with self-serving interests. 
powerful people manipulating narratives to their own end. So yeah, that's it. So um, I found the key point in when they started the entire Green New Deal because, as you know, my deal is figuring out how did this stuff get started and who were the psychopaths involved, right? So it actually started in the 1968-1960 time frame. And interestingly enough, I was around Santa Barbara exactly at that time. So no, I didn't perpetuate the crime. I just happened to be there. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty big deal. And I talk about that in the show. So, Because remember, it was around 2000 that um, we started getting recycling bins. And you know, it took us they only recently started figuring out that those recycling bins were just a, a, a trick, right? Because I remember I was in California and we all got recycling bins and it all started people going after each other too because people would give you a dirty look for tossing things in the trash. And little did we know it was all being dumped in China and places like Africa all along. Okay, I will be talking in detail about BP. In 2010, the company dominated the news headlines with the largest oil disaster in modern history. The explosion of the offshore rig Deepwater Horizon, which was under contract by BP, oil company, resulted in an oil spill that contaminated large parts of the Gulf of Mexico, killing thousands of marine animals and permanently damaging the surrounding ecosystem. Yeah, they also killed some people in that event. You'll have to just listen. I have some reasons that I looked into all these oil disasters and I gotta say all of them appear to be rather suspect to me. A lot of people, see, a, lot, a lot of these big things t tend to run offshore. Um, they have the Valdez and they claim that the captain was drunk. Well was he drunk? I don't know. Um, so a lot of cases of these things being, um, well, explosions, right? Their favorite trick, dynamite. Um, do I believe they set these on purpose? Well, of course I do, unless I find out otherwise, right? So a lot of a lot of disasters, well, I think all the disasters are caused by them, but you need to think for yourself. I go through all the lists, okay? Um, because, you know, there was a uh, thing this week at Hoover Dam, there was an explosion. Nobody knows yet, right? But um, there was an explosion. What happened was a tourist happened to catch the explosion at Hoover Dam. And, uh, well, they're getting ready. Uh, well, I'm not going to start predicting. I've already said I don't think Hoover Dam has long to last. But um, what's going to happen is they're getting to the point that they're going to start cutting off other states. So buckle up. Anyways, and Nebraska and Colorado are fighting over um, the water there. And they're talking about that next month. Funny how all this is happening, right? All these... Uh, places are running out of water, and they're going to meet about it like next month to talk about it. Oh, okay. Anyway, I want to talk about this briefly here. Um, Abe, or however you pronounce his name, the minister Shinzo of Japan. He had he was recently supposedly assassinated. Here's what I think. He had a chronic gastrointestinal disorder, and um, he had been taking time off because of his illness. Well, what he had connects is a potential risk factor in Parkinson's disease. So yeah, I think he was very sick and they basically just pulled him off the main stage, right? He's got the same thing that, um, a, a thing that connects to Parkinson's, so likely that, I, of course the shooting was a psyops, but I suspect it was a psyop, a psyop to pull him off the world stage because his health has declined so quickly.
In this show, I will be talking about, um, there's this movie called Soylent, S-O-Y-L-E-N-T, Green. It is one of the, uh, well, you know, they like to signal as part of this magic deal, right? Well, Soylent Green was positioned in the um, 70s, and it was a movie predicting 2022, which is pretty fascinating, right? And um, don't ask why, but we have a copy of Soylent Green over at the website that you can take a look at it. I consider it one of the best movies I've watched as far as their signaling, so just take a look for yourself, okay? And interestingly enough, there's a company now, believe it or not, called Soylent. Same spelling, S-O-Y-L-E-N-T dot com, and it's a health drink. I don't think I'll be drinking any of this stuff, but you decide for yourself. So I was also looking into, while I, after I was watching Soylent Green, I, I knew about what they call renderings. Like, where do we think they take all those dead animals from the shelters from? Well, they go into a process called renderings. So all you have to do is look up the word renderings. And they consider renderings to be the original recycling. But instead of recycling water bottles into plastic fibers or steel cans into car parts, rendering recycles leftover meat, fat, and bone into things like nutritious pet food and biofuels. It also takes the water out of raw waste, recycling the overall quality being processed. Well, rendering brings up a million issues, but let's not freak out about it, okay? Because I believe this is about cannibalism, okay? So they've got our pets eating other pets. Um, the, they have acknowledged that they have embryos in vaccines, and the Vatican even approved that. So um, it is something to think about, okay? Um, because... Remember when I talked about the chicken vaccines? Uh, I think chicken and vaccines is the name of the show. The U.S. military has secret chicken farms all over this country where they're breeding chickens. Well, I doubt they're just destroying those carcasses, okay, because it seemed interesting to me at the time when I was doing that show. I found out that when were chicken nuggets introduced into McDonald's and into our mines? Well, about the same time as these chicken farms. Um, and now they're running, they also have pig farms running in this country. So, yeah, it, something's going on. Um, what it is, uh, well, it's not good. But anyways, take a look for yourself. So let's get on with the show here. So enjoy the show. Thanks for joining me, and I will chat with you at the very end. called BP Rando News. Why is it called Rando News? Well, because normally I put things that I want you to pay attention to in the introduction, but it's becoming a novella, so I moved it to another section. So anyways, here we go. Italy is going down. Italy resigned after government implodes. It, Italian newspapers were united in their outrage at the surreal outcome given in Italy is dealing with soaring inflation and energy costs, among other issues. So yeah, it was this guy named Draghi, D-R-A-G-H-I. It was his government, and there were a lot of problems there. Go take a look for yourself, kids. Italy's down. Germany's in trouble. Plenty of the two last places these people were at 
are collapsing this last week, right? Kind of interesting. Anyway, so another big deal in the news that you should be paying attention to, and the reason I give you the bill numbers of these things is to go looky-looky for yourself, kids, okay? Finally, the truckers in this country are protesting. Why are they protesting? Well, because, let me read a little bit about this. A protest by truckers angry over a California labor law has shut down cargo operations at the Port of Oakland. It was announced on Wednesday. And today's Thursday the 21st, I believe, so that'll give you some context of what to look for. Finding news for yourself is very easy. Just take some keywords that I've talked about. All you have to do is say, type in things like trucker, trucker protest, Oakland, and there you go. You'll find everything you want to know to keep updated. A statement by the port said that the shutdown will further exasperate the congestion of containers and that port officials are urging operations at shipping terminals to resume. Well, trucking has always been a horrific issue in this country. Why? Because it leads to a lot of oppression. Truckers do not make the money they used to make. They're forced into all kinds of weird deals as far as driving long hours. Trucking is not something that has been highly regulated or dealt with in this country. Surprise, surprise. This protest, which began on Monday, involves hundreds of independent big rig truckers who have blocked the movement of cargo in and out of terminals at the port, which is one of the 10 busiest container ports in the country. There was no immediate word as to when the protest might end, but it's worsening supply chain issues that already have led to cargo ship traffic jams at major ports and stockpiled goods on the dock. The protest comes as toy makers and other industries enter their peak season for importing as retailers stockpile goods for the holiday seasons and back to school items. Here's what you're looking for, kids. The truckers are protesting Assembly Bill 5, also known as AB5. It was a gig economy law passed in 2019 that made it harder for companies to classify workers as independent contractors instead of employees who are entitled to minimum wage and benefits such as workers' comp and overtime and sick pay. So what they're trying to do is get these truckers who all this time have been independent to get in line with their dictates and go to work for trucking companies. How do you think this is going to work out? I don't know. Have you ever met a trucker? <laughs> I don't get the idea that they're going to buckle. Go truckers! Okay, why am I talking about gig economies? Well, they set up this gig economy idea to sell scams like Uber, all the gig jobs, DoorDash, all of them. And what they set it up to be was that these people would all go out and strike out on your own, be your own boss. Well, that attracted a lot of people who were tired of being oppressed by the system, right? So they thought, well, I'll go be an Uber driver or I'll go and drive for DoorDash. Well, it came with a lot of complications in the end because they were being, you know, exploited by the services. So in the end, if any of these people sat down and did the math, they started to figure out that they were actually making less than they would have if they worked at McDonald's. They were also destroying their own families from within because of having to be online 24-7 to catch the next order. They also set up China with the same deal. 
China had a big, huge, massive deal with all the teachers, people they had out there teaching kids and stuff. And so China also had a gig economy thing. It was really sold to escape the corporatism <clears throat> and go out and be your own boss. Well, it became an oppressive mess. And here again, if you want to know more, go look at Uber problems, scams. Just type in those words. So, yeah, they basically are now saying the truckers have to all become part of the system. But yet Uber and all these other gig workers are still operating. As a matter of fact, speaking of gig workers, um, my only access to um, delivery from local grocery stores here now is Walmart. Well, what's happening with Walmart? Well, they, they finally um, set up a system so they actually have drivers delivering their food and stuff, right? Well, in the very beginning, this has only been a couple months ago, right? In, in the very beginning, they included a $7 tip for the driver. Well, I certainly am quite poor, but I also believe in solidarity with others, right? <clears throat> so, of course, I was willing to pay the $7. And if I had a few extra dollars sitting around when the delivery guy showed up or gal, I would give them whatever I could because to defer their gas and other things. Well, what happened in the last couple of weeks? Well, they've taken that option away. Why? Well, likely because customers complained about paying that $7. So, yeah, so <clears throat> they basically took that away. So I talked to a driver about it. I said, hey, what's, what's going on with your tips being removed? And this driver really didn't even really know because, remember, they're relying on people not catching them out their scams, right? So I told him, I said, well, here's $10, and I really hope that you will go back and figure this out because I believe they're probably not including your tips in this <clears throat> because all of a sudden it stopped showing up. And when I talked to a rep at Walmart, they weren't an executive, they're a rep, they said it was because of consumer complaints, okay? <clears throat> Here again, we have a real tendency not to look out for each other, don't we now? This is how we ended up here. But, so anyhow, so yeah, so <clears throat> they removed the tip for the drivers. So what this kid told me was that, um, he said, I said, what else are they doing? And he said, well, <clears throat> the DoorDash people, I guess you get paid like $10 to deliver an order on DoorDash. Walmart has to pay you that money, right? He said what they're doing to the DoorDash people now is when they show up to pick up an order to get that $10 to make a local delivery, they will pile them on with extra orders. Well, what are you going to do? You're hungry. You need to feed your family. So you then go and deliver all four orders for that $10, which they should have paid you for one order. So it's just another squeeze on the economy, and I could go off on this until I'm blue in the face, but you get my message. Okay, next big deal. This week, they're bringing up Wuhan and the bats, and now they're claiming that monkeypox is also being penned on the Wuhan lab leak. Well, go look at my shows about um, how tech is involved in um, vaccines and stuff. And there's a guy in that show, because I talk about how the Google people and all of them are in the vaccine business now, uh, or have been for quite a while. Um, what's going on now is that people are... Um, starting to realize that here's what I think is happening. I think I think it's out there in the news again because I've said in the past I would have my bet on Fort Detrick. I would bet it's from the United States. And I've said why? Because that whole Wuhan military games and the US was there marching along with every other country in the world, okay? And then there was that fight between them China fought back around early 
China fought back at one point and said, hey, stop pinning this on us. It's probably the USA at Dietrich. Well, everybody kind of missed that part, right? So let me tell you, because I just mentioned in passing, why I think it's Dietrich. Now, I don't know. I haven't been on the facility. I'm just taking an educated guess here, okay? Because now we've got monkeypox. And in the past, I talked about my view is that they are using animals to cross-infect us. Notice all these diseases seem to originate for monkeypox from monkeys and from bats and from cows. <laughs> so anyhow, so let me tell you a little bit about Fort Detrick. It's spelled D-E-T-R-I-C-K. It's a command installation located in Frederick, Maryland. Historically, Fort Detrick was the center of the U.S. Biological Weapons Program from 1943 to 1969. Since the discontinuation of that program, it has hosted most elements of the United States Biological Defense Program. So did you hear me clearly? They said since they discontinued in 69, it has hosted most elements of the U.S. Biological Defense Programs, okay? As of early 2010, Fort Detrick's 1,200-acre campus supports a multi-governmental community that conducts biomedical research and development, medical material management, global medical communications, and the study of foreign plant pathogens. The lab is known to research pathogens such as Ebola and smallpox. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> it is home of the U.S. Army Medical Research and Development Command. With its biodefense agency, the U.S. Army Medical Research Institution of Infectious Diseases. It also hosts the National Cancer Institute and is home to the National Interagency Confederation for Biological Research and National Interagency Biodefense Campus. Yeah, I think, I think Dietrich is a pretty good bet, wouldn't you? In 2019, its deadly germ research operations were shut down following serious safety violations, in particular relating to the disposal of dangerous materials. Fort Detrick is the largest employer in Frederick County, Maryland. Well, kind of easy to control when you got a company town going there, right? So anyway, so yeah, that's it on Fort Detrick. Go look. See what you think. I have my bets on Fort Detrick, and I've had a pretty good accurate record so far. So if you have any good reasons why you have researched Wuhan or Fort Detrick, and you think Wuhan is a better location, fill me in. There's a reason why they put these things in the news, because Newsweek just did a big article saying that, hey, we've, we've investigated this. Stop this talk about monkeypox being in Wuhan. So now they're trying to deny that it was even in Wuhan. But yeah, it's just a deflective technique, because they put that out there so people think, oh, somebody's investigating this. <laughs> well, use your logic, okay? I've talked to you in the past about the reasons why you might consider being prepared when you go out in public, meaning do not be spending your time on your phone and looking down. Be completely aware of your surroundings, okay? There was an incident in Denver, Colorado this week, and the headline was, We Want Answers. Denver Police 
didn't tell two wounded bystanders that officers were the ones who shot them. Shot them. Three officers fired seven rounds at a man who allegedly pulled a gun from his hoodie and pointed it toward them as he was standing in front of Laramir Beer Hall, police said during a news conference on Wednesday. And here again, today is Thursday, so it happened around the 20th or something. Police initially reported five people were injured. On Tuesday, another man contacted the department to report he drove himself to the hospital after suffering a minor chest injury from the incident. The police went on to say, we are deeply concerned for those that were injured during the incident and are working to provide all available resources and support them as they heal. Yeah, they're concerned that it's got out in the news. So anyway, they never can't keep their story straight. So um, the shootings happened around 1.30 a.m. at the bustling intersection of 20th and Larimer Streets in Denver, which is surrounded by nightclubs and food vendors. Police said three officers fired at a man who was standing in front of Laramie Bar as he appeared, appeared to pull a gun from his hoodie jacket and point it toward them. Denver police opened fire into a crowd, injuring six bystanders while going after a suspect who never fired a gun. So the Denver police shot six bystanders on Sunday while going after a suspect they claimed to have seen with a gun in a crowded area of the city's downtown. The Denver shooting can be classified as a mass shooting as defined by the Gun Violence Archive, which describes the situation as a minimum of four victims shot, either injured or killed, not including any shooter who may have been killed or injured at the spot. So anytime there are a minimum of four victims shot, it becomes gun violence, okay? In this case, there were six. Okay, um, at around, this is what the police said. They said at around 1.35 a.m. Sunday near Larimar Street and 20th Street, the suspect, 21-year-old Jordan Waddy had gotten into a fight outside of the bar, the Denver Post reported. Police claimed in a press release that the suspect pointed a gun at them before three officers opened fire, injuring Waddy along with several bystanders. A witness named Guillermo Cortez told the Denver Post that the suspect never brandished a gun and that the police did not give any warning before firing. Normally they will yell something like, put the gun down, right? They're just cutting to the chase these days. Conversely, one unarmed officer said he was in fear. Excuse me. Oh, one unnamed. <laughs> I thought, how can an officer in this country be unarmed? <laughs> anyway, so one unnamed officer said he was in fear for his life as Wadi was now armed with a firearm and pointed the firearm in their direction, according to a police document. The police department originally noted that five individuals suffered non-life-threatening injuries, but on Wednesday confirmed a sixth one. The incident was the third time the department police officers opened fire in a span of a week. The third time the department officers 
opened fire in the span of a week. Did you hear that part? So, and this is the part that is kind of the clincher here. Police initially had trouble identifying the victims because some of them transported themselves to various hospitals and mixed in with victims from other shootings. That means other shootings in the area had so many people were getting shot that in Denver at that particular time that the suspects from this shooting kind of blended into the other crowd. So that's why they're saying how they lost crowd of they lost track of some of the victims who split, got in their own cars, got to a hospital. So yeah, always a story, right? Always a story, right? And I wanted to tell you something about pig transplants. And I didn't have the file open, so give me a second here to look it up. Because I want you to really understand who these people are. And also because I got hit by hundreds of fairly, or I would say reasonably intelligent people, who believe the lie about transhumanism. They believe that these people were making transhumans. Well, okay. I tried to tell them that, where'd you get this information from? Always from some random crazy person on YouTube. But anyway, so... Um, yeah, so the, 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 the evidence they were using basically to push this transhuman deal was Dolly the Sheep. Well, Dolly the Sheep was fake, so if you're using your only source of re reference as a fake event, then the transhuman thing gets pretty screwed up. So let me tell you about this, only because you need to understand they're not as smart as everybody's giving them credit for being, okay? Transplanting animals into people... It's kind of like them grabbing animals to, to give us diseases and vaccines, right? But anyway, so there's a word for it. It's called xenotransplantation. And it, this, this, this procedure is in part driven by the fact that the demand for human organs for clinical, clinical transportation far exceeds the supply. Probably what they said to get the funding for this thing, right? Xenotransplantation, or heterologous transplant, is the transplantation of living cells, tissues, or organs from one species to another. Yeah, they really have the transferring from the animals to us straight, but I don't think they have the um, other part straight. Such cells, tissues, or organs are called xenografts, or xenotransplants. That's X-E-N-O-G-R-A-F-T-S. It is contrasted with something else, too hard to deal with. But anyway, so I want to give you a brief history to hopefully put this transhuman thing and giving these people way too much credit. How are they selling this, this xenoplant thing? Well, they say that people would rather be alive than dead, basically. Go watch my show about what do you think about death. So... The fear of death drives people into all kinds of, I would consider, fairly crazy deals, right? But not for me to judge. Animal to human transplantation is a movement. In January, a Baltimore, in Baltimore, Baltimore history, and he received a heart transplant from a genetically modified pig, and the heart actually worked. Just a few months before, surgeons in New York attached a pig kidney to a brain-dead person's blood vessels and kept it alive for three days. And a surgical team in Alabama successfully transplanted a pig kidney into the abdomen of a brain-dead man. 
These achievements take us closer than ever to a future that transplant surgeons have been working toward for centuries, one where there is no more organ shortages, just a timeless supply of human-compatible animal parts ready for installation. Boy, aren't we just an arrogant bunch of real assholes, excuse my French, right? These animals deserve to give us their kidneys and stuff that we are blowing out by food and all kinds of other things. Lay off the hormones, kids, and you probably won't need a transplant. Just saying. Xenotransplants, as scientists call it, has always made some people squeamish. But the idea has persisted through the ages and many failed attempts because of, and because of its potential to save lives, people would rather be alive than dead, basically, said David Hamilton, a retired transplant surgeon and author of A History of Organ Translations. So he wrote this book, A History of Organ Translation, if you want to go look at more. Organ donors are constantly in short supply. More than 106,000 Americans are on the national wait list, and 17 of them die waiting each day. Though it seems like something out of science fiction, people have flirted with the idea of human-animal transplantation since antiquity, says scholars. Ancient Egyptians had the Sphinx, a human-lion-falcon mashup akin to mythical Greco-Roman centurions and fauns. So his legendary plate surgeons, when he attempted to attach wig, anyway, this story says that this person played surgeon, and he attempted to attach wings to himself and his doomed son Icarus. I C A R U S. It's happened in ancient Egypt. Inserting a pig horn organ into a human has the same end goal, to improve and augment human life. Recorded attempts at xenotransplant began with Jean Bestine Dennis, a physician in the 17th century French King Louis IX, who dabbled in animal-human blood transfusions to improve health. So now we have them, 17th century dabbling in animal human blood transfusions to improve health. And that was around the same time they were dabbling with getting cows and stuff into us as smallpox, right? Okay. Um, to improve health, animal blood, Dennis wrote, is less full of impurities than that of men because debauchery and irregularity in eating and drinking are not so common in them as us. Well, they're saying that animals have pure blood, but I don't know. Maybe you looked at what animals are being fed these days. Okay, after a couple of dog-dog and dog-calf test runs, he made several attempts to transfuse lamb blood into human patients. Obviously, that didn't end well because of allergic reactions, and the blood wasn't very compatible, says this transplant surgeon. Scientists didn't begin to understand the immune system until the last quarter of the 19th century. Until then, European physicians regularly transplanted skin from animals to cover ulcers and burns. Frogs were popular because of their thin skin, but occasionally rabbits, chihuahuas, and even chickens were used. Surgeons tried any animal that was around, said Hamilton. Monkey skin looked attractive and might have lasted for weeks. Regardless of the animal, 
these grafts never became permanent. The skin is one of the most immunogenic tissues, says this researcher, and most likely they were rejected after a few days. Well, yeah, I could have guessed that, <laughs> but of course I'm not one of their people. Okay, the body didn't... Okay, let me get here to the monkey stuff, um, because I've been talking about this monkey poxy. The body protested, I think that means rejected, didn't deter the infamous France-based surgeon Sergei Volonoff, V-O-R-O-N-O-F-F, -F, from carrying out his monkey gland experiments in the 1920s, which consisted of implanting slices of chimpanzee or baboon testicles into their human counterparts. Doing so, he wrote, would lead to all-around rejuvenation, sexual and otherwise, because the sex gland stimulated not only amorous passion, but also cerebral activity and muscular regeneration. He believed that using primate organs had a more robust physical constitution and didn't suffer from human ailments like alcoholism and arthritis. Though scientific reporting on these experiments was scarce, the surgeries were a sensation. When you look behind most of these things, you don't find any data. What you find is news reports and glamorification through the press. Okay, they even inspired an American named John Brinkley, who in the 1930s offered similar surgeries using goat, goat testicles that he claimed gave his patients and astonishing sexual vigor. Brinkley was sued for wrongful death multiple times and in 2016 inspired a documentary titled Nuts, N-U-T-S. And he was transplanting these nuts male genitalia in the 1930s. Well, I don't know. Look at a map. Not that long ago, right? Or a calendar. Scientists continued dabbling in xenotransplants throughout the 20th century but it didn't evolve until into a credible science, I'd argue credible, but credible science until the French surgeon Alexis Carrel, C-A-R-R-E-L, came up with a way to stitch together blood vessels. The technique earned him the 1912 Nobel Prize and ushered the era of transplants in general. With the successful transplantation of a kidney from a boy to his twin in 1954, it became clear that human-to-human -human transplants had enormous potential. So why not animals? Once ordinary human kidneys were possible, it became worth trying again. So they're saying once they got the human thing supposedly fixed, let's go back to the animals. So in the 1960s, the Tulane University surgeon Keith Roserman tried again to transplant chimpanzee kidneys into six people who suffered from kidney failure. Organ sabotage, organ sabotage was already a problem in the United States and dialysis was not available yet. All this impasse was developing. We decided to explore the use of non-human sources for clinical renal. So they're saying not enough people donating kidneys we know kidneys from people work, so, but we're not getting enough. So 
they decided to uh, explore the use of non-human sources for clinical renal transplantation. Um, I actually, when I was just so young, that I, I worked at a county hospital in Orange County. It was a um, funded, it was one of those um, county hospitals, which are also considered teaching hospitals. I worked as a ward clerk. I was like the low guy on the pole. I think I was probably about 19 or so. And um, I, they, I worked in the dialysis unit. And uh, I had an interest in dialysis and kidneys, just kind of an offshoot for years because, um, yeah, there's also a lot of money in those dialysis machines, but I don't have time to discover every crime these people have committed. But, yeah, there's a lot of scams with dialysis because us taxpayers fund that. So they're not overly motivated, I believe, to give people kidneys when they get them. They're more motivated to keep them for themselves. But anyway, it's just my view. So, yeah, so uh, here again, this fear of death. These people came into the hospital, um, and they were there. They came in, most of them came in three times a week to keep alive, and they were there for the day. So, uh, well, I don't know. Nobody considers quality of life. Well, it has to do with our fear of death, so I'm not going to keep going there. But anyway, science kept cheap chipping away at xenotransplantation, but they didn't have long-term success. The issue they faced is the same that plagues the field today. The body rejects foreign organs, especially those of an animal. Immune suppression drugs like Clisopin and this other one revolutionized immunosuppression for human-to-human -human transplantation in the 1980s. So they're not that far away. Uh, the 1980s, they're becoming more successful at these transplants, okay? Not that long ago, right? So all of a sudden, people believe that they're whipping out complete humans? I don't think so, kids. I never thought so. But anyway, so, um, but they couldn't get it as, and so the research turned towards animals themselves because we were not accepting animal organs. Um, primates were the donor animal of choice for xenotransplants as late as 1984 when an infant known as Baby Faye famously received a baboon heart. Chimps and monkeys, the logic went, were similar in size and closely related to humans, so their organs stood the best chance at being tolerated. But primates also take up to nine years to grow to the right size. They're relatively rare and difficult to breed and present the obvious ethical quandary of sacrificing close relatives for human gain. While at first, baby, baby Faye's heart transplant started to beat spontaneously, her condition deteriorated after two weeks and she died a few days later. So people started to look at pigs. They're everywhere. People eat pigs more than they eat monkeys. So ethically, the public would not feel so bad about using pigs. One litter of pigs can produce up to 20 piglets, each of which in six months can provide a heart, two lungs, two kidneys, a liver, a pancreas, and intestines. One pig can help eight patients. Surprisingly, some leaders within Judaism and Islam, which prohibit pork consumption, have been open to pig xenotransplantation. Saving a life is a saving a life is a trump card. 
funny how those Jews just all of a sudden decide that this, this garbage is okay when it has to do with organs they need. And go look at my shows about the Ashkenazi Jews and all of their diseases. I would just swing a guess here that if anybody needs organs, it's that 2% of them that ride the top of this world, right? Because they've been saying lately all this transgender stuff, they're saying, well, you know, I'm, you know they want to change all these laws for everybody to comply with people's pronouns and all this kind of stuff. Well, it's just warming us up for it. But anyway, so they say that 2% two pe two of the people in the world are transgender. Well, how many percentage of people run the world? Just think about it. Okay, um, years of research produced alpha-gal knockout pigs, which don't express the sugar. Well, I don't know what that is. These pigs have been used in every experimental xenotransplantation attempted this century, including the recent achievement in Baltimore, New York, and Alabama in December 2020, 2020, we're right now in 2022, There's, they haven't figured out the pigs or the monkeys yet, okay? Yet people believe, actually believe wholeheartedly that they're actually making whole humans, okay? Okay, um, so in December of 2020, the FDA administration approved gal-safe pigs, a line of alpha-gal knockout pigs developed by the Regeneration Medicine Company, Revivacort, for consumption and therapeutic use. So they approved this breeding of the special line of pigs. They're all into this animal stuff. Go look at my show that I did about chickens and vaccines and why the U.S. government owns a million chicken plants in this country. The U.S. government has all these secret chicken locations that they're using to develop vaccines with it. And around that same time, um, they came up with this idea of chicken McNuggets. So is there a connection? Well, of course there is. Do, do you really think they're using millions of chickens, secret military bases, to test for vaccines and they're just getting rid of those carcasses? You're losing track of who we're talking about here, okay? Everything is about money to these people. So of course they're using those chicken carcasses and selling them off as um, chicken nuggets. Because it just so happened that they came up with the chicken nuggets at the same time that they were coming up with these chicken farms, <laughs> these hidden chicken farms, right? So anyway, so, but even if the patients survive, it won't mean that pig to human organ transplants will become commonplace anytime soon. This was in 2020, okay? We need to know much more about the safety and impact of the procedure. Yeah, then what have we been talking about? You know, how many years were they actually supposedly putting the stuff into people? Researchers are still trying to understand the difference between the immune reaction to pig versus human host. And it may be that molecular beyond alpha-gal will need to be mitigated in pigs with different gene combinations for different patients. So yeah, they're just figuring out the pigs, yeah? So, um, already farms dedicated to growing pigs for human transplantation are being set up. And companies specializing in xenotransplantation are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, that's where the mafia in Silicon Valley will come in and fund all these people, right? <laughs> They spill money, so they'll be selling this new technology. Yeah, I think probably what happened was they had a hard time selling, ripping monkeys apart for no particular reason for their funding, and people were more willing to give them money if they were murdering pigs, right? 
pigs who are classified as smart as dogs, right? I've never owned a pig, but you know, I think they'd be relatively smart animals. But anyway, so yeah. Okay. Um, so they said the question is an if, but when, and this person urges caution <laughs> because he's concerned that missteps could push the field backwards. You don't want to fly too close to the sun, he said, unless you're really sure you can protect yourself. Use something other than wax. <laughs> I like that quote. Um, there's also a quote that I ran across that I like a lot. It says, um, um, common sense is a flower that not every garden has. So, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so this, I mentioned Dolly later, and she has been called the world's most famous sheep, Dolly, Dolly the sheep, by sources including BBC and Scientific America. The cell used as a donor for the cloning of Dolly was taken from a mammogram in the production of a healthy clone, so they took some gland, and supposedly they had a production of a healthy clone, Therefore, proof that a cell taken from a specific part of the body could recreate a whole individual. So just think about this for a second here, okay? Use a little bit of common sense. They said right here, this was the evidence that all these transhuman liars on YouTube were talking about. They were saying that it all traced back. Do Dolly the sheep was their proof. Did anybody bother to read this line? Anybody? Anybody out there? Wakey, wakey? So yeah, so uh, Dolly the Sheep, I'm not even sure Dolly the Sheep was even true to tell you the truth, but anyway, so yeah, I think that's, um, I think they picked on pigs because it was an easier sell than monkeys, and I basically think they really don't know what they're doing, but that's up to you to think about. This is just going to, now that it's happened in 2020, you'll probably start seeing news of new, 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 new studies coming out, new people coming out. So yeah, there's a lot of animal issues associated with catch you up on why I'm talking if I believe that they're transplanting things from animals to us to come up with these vaccines. Go look at that show I did about Google and I think the title on YouTube is called Tech Industry. You won't find it here on YouTube. It's called Tech Industry Vaccines in the title. As the rise of xenotransplantation makes plain biotechnology presents the potential for changing human life in ways that are unprecedented. Well, aren't they optimistic, right? As of Gaskell's research indicates, moral considerations regarding biotechnology for greater is a greater concern to society than even issues of safety. At the same time, societal ignorance of both science and ethics mitigate strongly against rational solutions to ethical issues, and even elevate non-issues to the highest of ethical concerns. For example, violating God's will or operating against nature, such a mistake, as our discussions indicate, can impede using biotechnology to save human life. So they're giving themselves pep talks about what they think is going on. Well, i got to tell you, I think you have an idea about what I think is going on, but Think about it for yourself. There's a place I long to be Where the air is wild and free It's a little haven just for me I can let my hair down and be me Just a smile for a start 
And it only takes a spark to begin the fire in your heart. Wouldn't you agree? Hello, listener. This is Hachi. I hope you are enjoying the show. We would like you to consider supporting us so as to keep giving you interesting content. Take a time out to check out the support page on the website. And please consider making a kind donation. We would appreciate any little support. Thank you. First of all, I don't think it is conspiratorial. I think it's a, it's a basic principle of journalism to follow the money. And we have conflict of interest rules precisely because people are human. And when, it, when you can benefit personally, economically, from policies that you are advancing, then those policies are called into question. Um, and, and the questions are raised. So that's why we have this legal architecture to prevent obvious conflicts of interest. And the Bush administration, um, you know, key figures in the Bush administration have just, just shown enormous defiance in the face of those rules and really twisted the White House lawyers up in knots trying to rationalize uh, um, holding on to, the, to, to, to these stocks. But to me, it's a, it's a broader question about the economy, what I call the disaster capitalism complex. And the fact that I don't believe, well, I think that there's a particular way of thinking that comes with being in the business of disaster. Uh, being, you know, and I'm not talking about just any old economic holdings, right? I'm talking about those particular economic holdings that increase, you know, whose fortunes increase when things go bad. Right, so oil and gas. Um, you know, the w- bad things happen. The price of oil goes up. You know, th- this we know, right? Whether it is a hurricane, whether it's a war, whether it's a fear of a war, whether it's Chavez and Ahmadinejad h- hugging, whatever it is, bad, price of oil goes up, right? Um, and the same is true for defense stocks. The same is true of homeland security stocks. The same is true for drug companies that are in the business of pandemics. So this is how I'm defining broadly the disaster capitalism complex, which is bigger than the military-industrial complex. The reason why Eisenhower warned, uh, 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 gave that famous warning in his last presidential address about the danger of the military-industrial complex is precisely because this is an industry that has an economic incentive for war and instability. Um, so I think that there is something really significant that we need to talk about um, in th- that the Bush administration, the people who have been running uh, the, the, the government in Washington, but also the occupation of Iraq, are card-carrying members of the disaster capitalism complex. You know, I realize, I don't think it sounds conspiratorial. I think it sounds obvious, right? I'm, in fact, embarrassed to be pointing this out because it's such an obvious point, but it amazes me that people don't talk about it all the time that Dick Cheney was in the business of privatizing the U.S. military before he went into office, that Donald Rumsfeld was in the business of profiting from pandemics before he went into office, that Bush was in the oil and gas business before he went, came into office, that his father was connected to the Carlyle Group, which is a major weapons dealer, um, that Paul Bremer, the chief envoy um, in Iraq who laid the economic framework for the occupation, that one month after September 11th, he launched a homeland security company to 
advise other corporations on how they could protect themselves in this new era that Rudy Giuliani did the same thing three months later. So these are all people who see profit directly from terrorism, natural disasters, and pandemics. What is their economic incentive to get us off this disastrous course? I mean, we need political leaders who think disasters are bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, that to me is a good starting premise. segment I'm going to be talking about some terminology so we're all on the same page and also I'd like to give you some background for the movie Soylent Green which I highly encourage you to go watch. Don't ask too many questions but we have a copy of the movie over at the website for you to take a look. The deal is they do a lot of signaling and I believe this is a pretty significant one so anyways let me talk first about, um, you know, Germany's going to pay the price for that pipeline, right? Uh, but it, it's interesting that they go in and tear up the country they came from, Germany. But anyway, so what's a fossil fuel? It's a high, hydrocarbon-containing material formed naturally in the Earth's crust from the remains of dead plants and animals that is extracted and burned as a fuel. The main fossil fuels are coal, crude oil, and natural gas. Fossil fuels may be burned to provide heat for use directly, such as for cooking or heating, to power engines, such as internal combustion engines and motor vehicles, or to generate electricity. This is going to be the kicker here. I think what's going to happen is all this heat, thanks to our friends at the U.S. military, record heats to <laughs> burn people up, um, sadly, is going to murder a lot of people because of this heat. So this is a planned murder, right, when they, when they spread heat all over the world in a very um, horrific way. So, yeah, so probably, now I don't know this for a fact, but I would guess that if they get countries to burn up whatever they have now in trying to keep themselves cool, well, then what will happen come winter? Well, too bad. I guess you better live in a cold environment, right? So anyway, so... Some fossil fuels are refined into derivatives such as kerosene, gasoline, and propane before burning. The origin of fossil fuels is the anaerobic decomp decomposition of buried dead organisms containing organic molecules created by photosynthesis. The conversion from these materials to high-carbon fossil fuels typically requires a geological process of millions of years. Yeah, I don't know about the millions of years, but um, in 2019, 84% of primary energy consumed in the world and 64% of its electricity was from fossil fuels. This is what they're saying. The large-scale burning of fossil fuels causes serious environmental damage, and over 80% of the carbon dioxide generated by human activity is from burning them, around 35 billion tons a year compared to 4 billion from land development. 
Natural processes on Earth, mostly absorption by the ocean, can only remove a small part of this. Therefore, there is a net of many billion tons. Yeah, well, that's what they're saying, right? Um, of course, there is what appears to be some horrific uh, issues with the environment because it was created by them, right? Cause and effect. Create a huge problem and then swing in for the controls and the fix, right? Recognition, I'm reading from their piece here, I'm not saying this, yet. recognition of the climate crisis, pollution, and other negative impacts caused by fossil fuels has led to a widespread policy transition and activist movement formed on ending their use in favor of sustainable energy. However, because the fossil fuel industry is so heavily integrated in the global economy and heavily subsidized, this transition is expected to have significant economic impacts. Many stakeholders argue that this chain needs to be a just transition and create policy that addresses the societal burdens caused by stranded assets of the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, they always have their hands out, don't they? So it's been led up by the UN Sustainable Development Goals, International Energy Agency. In 2021, the International Energy Agency concluded that no new fossil fuel extraction projects could be opened if the global economy and society wants to avoid the worst impacts of climate change and meet international goals for climate change mitigation. Yeah, well, take a look at the U.S. military. They pollute more than, I think, 80 countries. Well, the U.S. military is a big, big polluter, okay? I've already done shows about this. I'm not going to go there on that part. But here's the part where they, I think they caught a lot of people's attention with in the fracking, okay? And what is fracking? Fracking also causes earthquakes. <coughs> but anyway, so which is why I've been saying that I think they're what they're doing, a lot of these events like Tusamis happen around the water, right? How easy would it be to cause some disruption in the, in the water to create those big waves and stuff, right? So hydraulic fracturing, also called fracking, hydrofracking, and hydrofracturing, is a well stimulation technique involving the fracturing of bedrock formations by a pressurized liquid. The process involves the high pressure injection of fracking fluid, primarily water containing sand and other propanes, suspended with the aid of a thickening agent into a well bore to create cracks in the deep rock formations through which natural gas, petroleum, and brine will flow more freely. When the hydraulic pressure is removed from the well, small grains of hydraulic fracturing proponents, either sand or aluminum oxide, hold the fractures open. Hydraulic fracturing began as an experiment in 1947, and the first commercially successful application followed in 1951. As of 2012, 2.5 million frac jobs have been performed worldwide on oil and gas wells, over 1 million of those within the United States. So since 2012, all of these are going on. Such treatment is generally necessary to achieve adequate flow rates in shale gas, tight gas, tight oil, and coal seam gas wells. Sub-hydraulic fractures can form naturally in certain veins or dikes. 
drilling and hydro hydraulic fracturing have made the United States a major crude oil exporter as of 2019. But leakage of methane, a powerful greenhouse gas, has dramatically increased. Increased oil and gas production from the decades-long frac fracking boom has led to lower prices for consumers, with near record lows of the share of household income going to energy. Me, with near record lows of the share of household income going to energy expenditures. However, hydraulic fracturing is highly controversial. Its proponents advocate the economic belief benefits of more extensively accessible hydrocarbon as well as replacing coal and natural gas, which burns more cleanly and emits less carbon dioxide. Opponents of fracking argue that the, these are outweighed by the environmental impacts, which include groundwater and surface water contamination, noise and air pollution, and the triggering of earthquakes, along with the resulting hazards to public health and the environment. Research has found reverse health effects in populations living near hydraulic fracking sites, including confirmation of chemical, chemical, physical, and psychosocial hazards, such as pregnancy and birth outcomes, migraine headaches, chronic rhinositis, that means nasal thing, severe fatigue, asthma exasperation, and psychological stress. Adherence to regulation and safety procedures are required to avoid further negative impacts. There is considerable uncertainty about the scale of methane leakage associated with hydrologic fracking, and even some evidence that leakage may cancel out the greenhouse gas emissions benefits of natural gas relative to other fossil fuels. And then there was a report by the Environmental Defense Fund, really a highly respectable group of liars. <laughs> okay, the Environmental Defense Fund, also known as the EDF, highlights this issue, focusing on the leakage rate in Pennsylvania during extensive testing and analysis was found to be approximately 10%, or over five times the reported figures. These leakage rates, this leakage rate is considered representative of the hydraulic fracturing industry in the U.S. generally. EDF has recently announced a satellite mission to further locate and measure methane regions. See, they always plunder into these things, and I believe they know these things are doing it when they're doing it, but they just wait to get caught, right, by somebody else. Increases in seismic activity following hydraulic fracturing along dormant or previously unknown faults are sometimes caused by the deep injection disposal of hydraulic fracturing flowback, a byproduct of hydraulic fractured wells, and produce formation brine, which is the thing that you really don't want to have. For these reasons, hydraulic fracturing is under international scrutiny <laughs> restricted in some countries, and banned altogether by others. The European Union is drafting regulations that would permit the controlled application. No, anyway, so, well, that, that's all you have to know about, because basically they were fracking. This, this country is loaded with oil. It's all a big scam. I, I spent a long time looking into the scam, but let me tell you. 
they they have all these things with these refineries and all this stuff, and really it's playing ball to hide the cost of fuel because fuel is in fact their liquid gold. You know they can cut back on fuel to charge more for planes. They have fuel in everything, so it is really just part of the deal that they are hazardous people to deal with themselves, right? They always use us as a testing ground, and then they say, oh, wait a minute, lots of kids are not being born in this area. Maybe it's because the mothers are losing the babies at a fast rate. Well, yeah, that's how it all works. So let me move on to a, another probably more, well, might be more interesting, <laughs> might be more deadly. <laughs> um, Soylent Green. Uh, you know, they like to, it's, it's part of their deal with magic, right? They project and, and present to us what they have planned, right? And um, they do it through movies and music and different kinds of things. And I found this whole connection to Soylent Green just fascinating. <laughs> so, if I do say so myself, I would say it's probably one of my favorite movies. They used to have some pretty good actors back then. It was Edward G. Robinson's last movie, and I think that they, you know, it really shows to me the hormone abuse these people have put themselves through in the last few generations. Because, you know, the movies are just aren't the same now. But let me get back on track here. <laughs> okay, Soylent Green, S-O-Y-L-A-N-T, Green. It's funny they call this the Green New Deal, too, isn't it? <laughs> green money, Soylent Green. Is a 1973 American ecological dystopian thriller film directed by Richard Fleischer, starring Charlton Heston, Lee Taylor Young, and Edward G. Robinson in his final film role. Loosely based on a 1966 science fiction novel, Make Room, Make Room, by Harry Harrison. The film combines police, procedural, and science fiction genres. The, it is about the investigation into the murder of a wealthy businessman and a dystopian future of dying oceans and year-round humidity due to the greenhouse effects, resulting oh shoot, I scrolled down too fast. Resulting in um, now I've lost my place. Just give me one second here. If I try to scroll on one page, I don't get it. Okay, so okay, due to the greenhouse effect resulting in pollution. Poverty, overpollution, euthanasia, and depleted resources. Starting to sound familiar, kids? In 1973, it won the Nebula Award for the Best Dramatic Presentation and the Saturn Award for the Best Science Fiction Film. Well, I don't really think it's fiction, but you have to decide for yourself. And this is the description of what the movie is about. And I'm not going to ruin the plot line because I'm not going to tell it to you, but you need to watch this movie. It's pretty good. And Archie went to quite a bit of trouble to get us a copy, so. Okay, here's a description of the movie, and I'll try to read through it without interjecting. Uh, by 1922, the, excuse me, <laughs> by 2022, which is this year here, we're looking at July 2022. Okay, so this movie was based in, and they said it's by 2022. The cumulative effects of overpopulation, pollution, and an apparent climate catastrophe have caused several worldwide shortages of food, water, and housing. In New York City alone, there are 40 million people, and, the only, and this, only the city's elite can afford spacious apartments, clean water, and natural food. 
The homes of the elite are fortified with private security and bodyguards for their tenants. Usually they include concubines, who they refer to as furniture, and serve the tenants as slaves. Those would be women. <laughs> the poor live in squalor, haul water from communal spigots, and eat highly processed wafers called soylent red, soylent yellow, and the latest pro product, far more flavorful and nutritious, called soylent green. Within the city limit, New York Police Department Detective Robert Thorne and his aged friend Saul Roth, who was Edward G. Robinson, a brilliant former college professor and police analyst referred to as a book, Thorne is tasked with investigating the murder of the wealthy and influential William R. Simonson, a board member of the Soylent Corporation, which he suspects was an assassination. So this Thorne guy was called in to investigate this murder of this guy who is a board member of the Soylent Corporation, okay? With the help of Simonson's concubine, Cheryl, his investigation leads to a priest that Simonson had visited shortly before his death. Because of the sanctity of the confessional, the nearly overcome priest can only hint at the contents of the confession before he is murdered. Thor's immediate supervisors tell him to end the investigation by the governor's order. Because he is concerned about losing his job to hire superiors if he quits the case and the fact that an unknown stalker is following him, he continues. He is soon attacked while working during a riot by the same assassin who killed Simonson. But the killer is crushed by the hydraulic shovel of a police crowd control vehicle. In researching the case for Thorne, Roth, who was Saul, who was Edward G. Robinson, brings two volumes of Soliant Oceanographic Survey Report taken from 2015 to 2019 from Simonson's apartment to the team of other books at the Supreme Exchange. So this Simons guy had these books, okay, with secrets from the Soyan factory place, right? So Saul belonged to this group of people. So what he did was he took this, these books to his group of peers, because he's, he's real old, his peers are real old, and they're off trying to sort this stuff out. After analysis, the books, who are what they call these people, like they call the girl and the, the concubines, they call them the furniture, and they call these people the books. Notice how they become very depersonalized, right? So after analysis, the books confirm that the oceanographic report reveals that the oceans are dying and can no longer produce the plankton for which soylent green is made. The reports also show that soylent green is being produced from the remains of the dead and the imprisoned obtained from heavily guarded waste disposable plants outside the city. The books further reveal that Simonson's murder was ordered by his fellow Soylent Corporation board members who knew Simonson was increasingly troubled by the truth and feared he might disclose it to the public. On hearing the truth, Ross is so shaken that he decides to return to the home of God, which they said was really Lucifer, and seeks assisted suicide at a government clinic. 
See, it's interesting that in this movie, they said going home, but they reference it as Lucifer, right? Kind of backs up what I've been trying to convey here as far as they have this whole God thing twisted around, right? So, yeah, so <clears throat> he's shaken. So he decides to return to the home of God, which they say was Lucifer. And he sought assisted suicide at a government clinic. Thorne rushes to stop him, but arrives too late. Before dying, Roth whispers that he has learned to Thorne, that he what he has learned to Thorne, and his last died act begs Thorne to find proof and take it to the Supreme Exchange, so they can take the information to the Council of Nations to take action. Thorne boards a truck transporting the bodies from the euthanasia center. Thorne boards a truck transporting the bodies from the euthanasia center to a waste disposal plant, where he witnesses human corpses being converted into soil and green. Horrified, Thorne is spotted and escapes. As he returns to the ex Supreme Exchange, he is ambushed by the soil and operatives. So I would encourage you to go watch the movie. Do I think that they're now... Well, they have a lot of imagery and things they have... Um, said to us about cannibalism, right? I believe they, I, I think they do do cannibalism, right? All these stories about drinking baby's blood, all that stuff. Well, there's something there, right? Um, do I think we're, we're now doing cannibalism? Yeah, probably, because in the 1950s, I looked it up, in the 1950s was when we were introduced with packaged goods, right? So yeah, I think it's pretty crazy, but the crazier it sounds, the more likely it is true, right? So do I believe we're probably possibly eat other people? Yeah, of course I do. I would have a hard time saying no, um, because this is how it works, right? This is how evil works. I think they wanted to get us to eat all these dead animals and all this other stuff that they want to feed us as part of our diet. So yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to this movie, and telling you the overview doesn't tell you the whole story. So I would really encourage you to go watch it and think for yourself. The whole idea of sharing my work is to not create fear, but to show you how this all worked, right? Because we got here because we were all too busy with things to understand what they were actually pulling off, right? So now we're here, so let's try to understand how we got here, right? So anyway, so yeah, it's a pretty fascinating movie if you ask me, so <laughs> go look for yourself. It's in, under the show notes, Psychopath in Your Life, the website. Just look on the tab called Show Notes, and you will find the movie right there in front of you to take a look at. I consider it fascinating. And there's a lot to this story that is not here in the description that you will find. There's nothing boring in the thing. It, 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 it's, a real, it's a real look at, um, I think, what they're signaling. But you have to think for yourself. I think it's signaling. What do you think? Anthony Bourdain. The next film in our Friday Night Spotlight salute to food in the movies may, on the surface, seem like somewhat of a lame choice to include in our festival. After all, the main sustenance in the film, which is called Soylent Green, is a bland, wafer-like concoction that the characters in this movie live on because there isn't much alternative. 
The population has risen so high there just isn't enough food to go around. So a crispy substance called Soylent Green is created to help sustain the masses. But despite that premise, when you watch the movie, you'll see there are a few scenes that actually show what great meals are all about. The film stars Charlton Heston as a cop investigating the murder of a rich man played by the great Joseph Cotton in a bit part. Before leaving the scene of the crime, which is this rich guy's apartment, Heston confiscates some rarely seen real food, like beef and actual produce. He brings it home to his longtime friend, played by Edward G. Robinson, and nothing here is taken for granted. There's an absolute appreciation for how wonderful plain, basic food can be. The crunch of a good apple, the crispness of a stalk of celery, the delicacy of a plain old steak. No frills, no pretension. This same scene also shows how the shared experience of a great meal can really bring people together. The two characters barely say a word to each other, but their bond is strengthened by this fantastic meal they're sharing. The film was a huge hit in 1973, a time when sci-fi thrillers were all the rage. Here also, with Lee Taylor Young and Chuck Connors from 1973, Soylent Green. segment let's just kind of cut to the chase here one thing I find interesting is that people have been programmed on this push for new right got to have a new car got to always have new clothes just discard the ones you already have right very disposable society we've created and um, or been led into however you want to look at it so how this all get started uh, well lots of ways okay uh, in the early 2000s an integral part of BPs, they call they call themselves Beyond Petroleum, BP, that oil spill that I'll be talking about in great detail soon here. Okay, it had a rebranding campaign. The oil company introduced the very first carbon footprint calendar calculator. Carbon footprint calculator, okay? Go listen to my show about Elon Musk. They use these carbon deals as, it, it, this, is, this is a scam. Not, I'll go into it later about what this ESG stuff is. But, yeah, they came up in the 2000s with this new marketing scheme, okay? And this carbon footprint calculator turned out to be an instant success. Consumers could now assess the impact they have on the environment shifting the public narrative about climate protection away from the fossil fuel industry and highlighted the responsibilities of the individual instead. It was never about the straws, never about the straws. It was to shift the responsibility to blame us for their own actions. Typical psychopathic behavior. The way you get out of the crime is you set up the other guy, right? And that other guy has been us at our expense and all that other stuff. So anyways, they had slogans for this campaign that said such things as, it's time to go on a low-carbon diet. The campaign suggested that the consumer preferences of individuals were responsible for climate change, not large fossil fuel corporations. 
Not only does this deflect the responsibility from companies such as BP that responsibilities toward the environment, it also undermines and defers collective public action against the fossil fuel. They're always nudging us to see if we react. This was a way to put us deeply into a slumber in the early 2000s with the very first carbon footprint. Look at the news. John Kerry, the I don't know, he's in charge of, anyway, John Kerry's flying around his private jet, go look at his stuff, he's saying, well, it's important for people like me to have my own plane, well, yeah, that, that's how their, their arrogance is starting to seek out in pretty alarming ways, but anyway, so, yeah, so this, this was a setup to make all of us take the responsibility, so then I looked at, starting in 2000, what were they up to as far as laws they were passing, right, they come up with a slogan, that it's all about us and the straws we're using. Go look at my show about the U.S. military. It's over on YouTube. I think it's only on YouTube. The U.S. military is in the headline. I mean, <laughs> they pollute more than anybody. So anyway, so, okay, so I looked at some dates of what they were doing around this time. 2001, Cheney's Secret Dirty Energy Task Force crafts national energy policy. The Bush administration released the National Energy Policy Report on May the 16th, 2001. President Bush appointed President, Vice President Cheney, who gave up his title as CEO of oil and gas company Halliburton to take on his new role with developing a new energy policy swiftly after taking office. But Cheney's relationship with Halliburton did not end. Cheney was kept on the company's payroll after retirement and retained around 430,000 shares of Halliburton stock. The task force reports were based on recommendations provided to Cheney from coal, oil, and nuclear companies and related trade groups, many of which were major contributors to Bush's presidential campaign and to the Republican Party. Oil companies, including BP, the National Mine Association, and the American Petroleum Institute, secretly met with the Cheney and his staff as part of a task force to develop the country's energy policy. We need to reinvent the energy business, declared BP's chief executive in a speech at Stanford University in March 2020. We need to go beyond petroleum. Just shy of 20 years ago, uh, maybe 25 now, but anyway, the oil giant BP infamously rebranded itself from British Petroleum to Beyond Petroleum, pledging to hold emissions constant and to be a steward to the planet. The company failed to live up to this new image, and under financial pressure, BP eventually sold off its solar and wind assets, quietly abandoning the 2001 rebrand. 2020, 2002, Senate Clean Energy Bill fails. The Senate began acting on a bill proposed in a previous Congress that would have raised fuel economy standards for cars and light trucks and included more incentives for energy conservation and alternative fuels, but no Arctic refuge drilling. The bill passed the Senate, but was but was not reconciled with the House bill that closely followed the Cheney Dirty Energy Task Force proposal. 
And this is this this thing is all about renewable energies right now, right? They said we got to get off all this stuff that they were doing with the oil and the fracking and all that stuff, but we got to get to the renewables. Well, renewables are water, solar, and air, right? Water is all these dams produce electricity. Solar is all those failed solar projects they've had putting panels on people's houses and stuff. And air being wind turbines. That is how they got Texas into that trap. But anyway, so yeah, so renewable energies are what they wanted to they want to come to now, right? So what were they doing about renewable energies back then? Well, in 2003, President Bush released his fiscal year 2003 budget on February 4th, which devoted unprecedented funding for research and development at the Department of Defense and the National Institute of Health. It meanwhile, so they put money into De Department of Defense and the National Institute of Health. Huh, and what they were doing there, right? It meanwhile reduced research and development funding for biomass, geothermal, and solar energy programs. So in 2003, they cut it, right? <laughs> what else happened in two, 2003? House bill includes 23.5 million in tax breaks for dirty energy. The House passed another oil industry handout energy bill, HR6, on March 11, 2003, that would allow oil and gas leasing in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, let companies avoid federal royalty payments on national gas taken from the Gulf of Mexico, and provide for expedited environmental impact studies. The legislation would hand out $23.5 billion over 10 years in tax breaks to increase oil and gas production and $5.4 billion to subsidize the loan guarantees. So we're kind of getting a mixed message here, aren't we? They're pushing back on the uh, fossil, pushing back on developing new energy, but yet they're giving them full access um, according to H.R. 6 bill to go and drill away in uh, Alaska and also to let them forego having to pay taxes, right? 2004, House passes bill allowing companies to build oil refineries in minority communities. The United States Refinery Revitalization Act passed the House on June the 16th but was never made into law. 2005, more renewable energy budget cuts. President Bush's fiscal year 2006 budget once again cut energy efficiency and renewable energy programs at the Department of Energy by about 4%. Cuts totaling nearly $50 million. So there was an energy bill. President Bush signed the Energy Policy Act of 2005 on August the 8th. About an 8-8 there, right? They love those 8s. The bill closely re resembled Cheney's 2001 plan and gave $27 billion to coal, coal oil, and gas and nuclear and only $6.4 billion for renewable energy. Amendments in the House and Senate to raise the fuel efficiency standards for vehicles failed. Amendments in the House to remove provisions limiting state and local roles in the 
sitting of oil refiners has also failed as it measures to ensure environmental justice for minority and low-income communities. So, of course, the, the thing failed, and so did, you know, going ahead, uh, targeting. There's also, I've been looking into oil for a million years. There's also um, a deal in this country that you might want to go look for. Um, this country has abandoned oil things all over this oil rigs that they just have just wrecked the land and just left them abandoned. I really can't remember today exactly how many of them are, but it was a pretty alarming amount and a pretty alarming environmental impact and all this stuff. So the fallout's pretty great on this stuff. Regulations we're, we're focusing on to permit oil and gas industry to regulate itself. Okay? And um, I've been mumbling about Hurricane Katrina because I had a note to myself in this file and said, don't forget to look at Katrina and the oil industry. Well, I think Katrina was a tipping off point for our consciousness over uh, global warming and making us think that it was really real, right? Um, I'm not saying the environment isn't bad. I'm saying it's bad because they made it bad, right? So if you've missed that part, you haven't been paying very close attention. So, okay. Um, Hurricane Katrina was a large and destructive Category 5 Atlantic hurricane that caused over 1,800 fatalities and $125 billion in damage in late August 2005. In the days after, when the world watched Hurricane Katrina become one of the worst national disasters in U.S. history, a question reverberated through the public consciousness. Was climate change to blame? Remember, hurricanes are their effect. So that was 2005, we had Katrina. So then in 2006, Bush declared that America is addicted to oil. He said this in a State of the Union address on January the 31st, 2000 and 2006. So um, how this came into it, I'm not really clear, but I'm just trying to follow a sequence here. A House-passed bill allows drilling in the Arctic. already talked about that, um, but they blocked it. I, I don't know why, but anyways, if you want to look at that Arctic refuge, yeah, I have to be careful what rabbit holes I fly down here. So anyway, so, um, but during that year, more budget cuts for renewable energy. President Bush's 2007 fiscal year budget cut funding for energy conservation, he cut it by 6.3%. To, and made the budget $289 million and stopped funding for geothermal program, although Congress later restored some of the geological funding. Interesting, huh? March 2006, a BP oil pipeline caused one of the largest oil spills in Alaska's history. I have in this show, I have, I've gone through all these disasters, um, do I think they're, well, but keep listening. Anyway, so, okay, so, that I think the Alaska, the, the Alaska was the Valdez, and there's a lot of suspicion in my mind as far as, um, well, <laughs> listen to it. It seems to me like a lot of boats got, have gotten run ashore and run into other boats, and Valdez was about supposedly the captain was drunk and they ran ashore and caused this huge disaster. So, okay. 
one has to wonder planned or uh, part of the part of the selling package right 2007 government agencies failed to collect more than 80 865 million in revenues Investiga investigators from the interior department determined that a top interior department official was told nearly three years ago about a legal blunder that allowed drilling companies to avoid billions of dollars in payments for oil and gas pumped from publicly owned waters. The report found that the Minerals Management Service, also known as the MMS, a U.S. government agency, um, could have collected $865 million in the previous three years alone. Follow the money. Okay, still in 2007, budget cuts for renewable energy had happened again. Bush's fiscal year 2008 budget proposed to cut research funds for efficiency and renewable energy by 16%, eliminate them for geothermal energy, and leave funding for solar stagnant. Scroll down here before I get going. Um, we're still talking 2007 here. Um, Bush administration opposes expansion of renewable energy. President Bush also threatened to veto the Energy Independent and Security Act because it included a renewable electricity standard and renewable energy tax credits funded by the elimination of many tax subsidies for major oil companies, totaling approximately $13 billion. So the renewable people got shoved to the side to keep the oil and gas people happy, okay? Congress estimated these provisions from the bill. Oh, so anyway, so they, they eliminated the provisions that had to do with coming after them, right? That's where all those handy lawyers come into play. Um, Bush blocked the request the same day. He signed a bill from California and he does other states that wanted to adopt global warming pollution standards that would have enhanced fuel economy and saved oil. Okay, 2008. Bush again cuts renewable energy. President Bush proposes a 27, remember we're escalating the percentage of cuts here, right? Now he's doing a 27% cut for Department of Energy efficiency and renewable energy programs in the fiscal 2008 budget. Um, so yeah, he, he opposed the expansion of renewable energy and passaged a Renewable Energy and Energy Conservation Act, H.R. 5351. Still in 2008, Bush lifts moratorium on offshore drilling. Bush lifted the executive moratorium on offshore drilling in the eastern Gulf of Mexico and off the Atlantic and Pacific coast on July the 14th, 2008. This moratorium was put into place in 1990 by Dad, George W. Bush. Bush then called on Congress to lift its own annual ban on drilling as, as John McCain and Brad 
Drill Baby Drill that year. Remember John McCain was running around and he was singing that song, Drill Baby Drill? They were very happy because remember all this time, money was just flying directly into their pockets, right? So um, there was a scandal in 2008. Government agencies accepted gifts and engaged in fraternizing and illicit activities. A 2008 Interior General Report found that minerals management officials accepted gifts, engaged in drug use, and illicit sex with employees from energy firms, and showed favoritism in handling contracts. Gasoline prices soared to more than $4 per gallon, and oil set an all-time record high price of $147 per barrel in July 2008. Gee, was it 2008 when they also collapsed the housing industry? Funny how these things all work out, right? Um, and then rolling forward, I talk about this in pretty great detail in the show of all the things about it. Um, in 2010, the oil BP oil spill, it was a thing called, it's also called, the, the contractor was called Deepwater Horizon. So that unleashed the largest marine oil spill in history. And this all got started, I don't remember if I tell that story, but um, you have to keep in mind that I record these stories as I'm going along, um, so these files, and this, this, is, this is the biggest file I've tried to tackle so far, uh, because this is their major crime spot, right? Um, yeah, what happened, there was a big oil spill in 1969 that triggered all this stuff, and I don't know why I don't have it in this file, I probably have it somewhere, but um, <laughs> um, 1969, there was a big, huge oil spill in Santa Barbara, and I was actually in Santa Barbara at the time, around that time, um, and yeah, uh, they had a big oil spill, and that was the founding of uh, all the green movement, okay, that, that brought in all the people, the environmental people, to keep us on that track of, oh my god, oil spilling off the water in Santa Barbara, this is a horrible, and uh, yeah, so that, 1969 was what triggered this first into our brains, and why I don't have it here, I don't really know, but luckily I have a pretty good memory. So anyway, so yeah, 1969, matter of fact, I had a bumper sticker on my car that year that said something about um, spread, all, spread oil all over the beach, and tuned Union, Union 76 was the oil company that did that day, and that was a massive movement, and hope uh, if I don't have it in here, I'll remember and put it in here, so yeah, so that was the turning point, 1969, when they were trying to feed us drugs and stuff, they were also polluting the water out there, so yeah. 1969 was an interesting time. Uh, I drove, my, my dad gave me the Volkswagen to drive, and um, everybody had Volkswagen to drive, I guess. We brought ours back from Europe, but anyway, so yeah, um, he put a bumper sticker, I think that was when bumper stickers first became popular, because the car I drove, for, for whatever reason, my dad put a bumper sticker on the Volkswagen, which was a car I drove, and it said, Register Communists, Not Firearms. <laughs> Gives you a little added note here about the theme of the time. Of course, I was horrified because I was becoming a little peacenik myself, right? You know, 1969, the beatniks were right before the hippie movement, okay? And kids that I went to high school were actually beatniks. <laughs> That's what pot came in, the beatniks and the Beatles and all that stuff. So, yeah. 1969 was a pretty significant turning point, as I could see it. Also, 1971, did a big show about 1971. So, the big access point here was the late 60s. And all this other stuff became the fallout from that, yeah. So, did I take the bumper sticker off of my car? No, of course I didn't. Because <laughs> we, we actually respected our parents. Now, did we, we also snuck around and stuff. <laughs> 
not trying to present myself as some kind of angel here, but yeah, um, of course I wouldn't have suggested taking a bumper sticker off. I just, you know, I wasn't going to stop driving the car, but yeah, it was kind of funny at the time because he was really a 10 on that bumper sticker. That was 1969. All of us kids were starting to go wild, and our parents really did not have a clue. My father, bless his heart, did not have a clue what to do with me. That's why, that's why I ended up in Santa Barbara, because it was the only place I had to go when I had two days' notice to leave the house. So, yeah, he did me the biggest favor in my life. It taught me a great deal of independence. And, uh, yeah, so I thank him now. I didn't for years think that it was the right move on his part. But, yeah, it was a brilliant move on his part, because... I had to snap awake and get busy working, so that's when I found my first job at that tranny doctor at Santa Barbara's. So yeah, I had to uh, kick into gear, and it gave me a great deal of uh, security making it on my own, which had been robbed of children these days. We were called the free-range generation, and we went out in the morning and we came back in at night. So yeah, I don't think there was that much wrong with our generation, as people claim. We had a lot of independence kids, a lot of independence. So kids now are wrapped up in cotton balls. I'm not so sure that's the best approach either. But anyway, way off track here for this thing. But I just remembered I was going through all that I hadn't put in the 1969 stuff. So there you go. That's the energy scam. And that's exactly how it has all been laid out. So you have to ask yourself these questions. Why were they bringing back budgets for renewable energy? Well... <laughs> And now all they're doing is pushing renewable energy. And whoops, we don't have enough renewable energy. And uh, yeah, so some things don't really make sense, do they? That's why common sense is a key factor when you're doing research. So yeah, that's exactly how it all happened. And it, information is all right here, right? They love to signal what they have going on. So that's all I know about energy. i got to close out this file and keep moving here. So... Think for yourself. Looks like a setup to me, but hey, I'm just here sharing my research, not trying to fill your head with ideas. You need to take this take this work up I'm trying to share with you. And do you think this was all a scam? Well, I'm I'm completely convinced it's a scam, but you know, that's not up for me to decide. I'm sharing research, not trying to manipulate your brain. We've had enough of that going in this lifetime. So thinky thinky kids. was over 130 million gallons. This was the equivalent of having over a million gallons of oil released into the Gulf every day. We found that the animals that lived in the nearshore environment, things like shrimp and fish and burrowing crabs, had lower survival rates. There was a significant reduction in the amount of oyster habitat baby turtles that swim offshore and drift in floating seaweed were exposed to oil for long periods of time. We saw 900 plus dolphins strand or wash ashore, many of them dead. One of the more significant injuries was to the nearshore habitats. Having oil come into an salt marsh habitat can have significant consequences, both for the salt marsh habitat itself but that will cascade out into the ocean environment too.
Okay, just to set the stage here, let's talk about something called ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Just so we have all these words correct and what part of this plan is, um, I just recently, oh, I don't know, in the last couple of weeks, um, received a notification from my local gas company asking me to take a look at something to learn about my carbon footprint, okay? And, um, yeah, so they're starting. So anyway, so ESG is what they've cooked up, and that's why they talk about what they're using ESG for is to rank companies. Of course, it's like everything else. It's all convoluted and criminal, but anyway, so ESG. Environmental stands for environmental criteria, refers to an organization's environmental impact and risk management practices. These include direct and indirect greenhouse gas emissions, stewardship over natural resources, and the firm's overall resilience against physical things. So yeah, I, I'm sorry, I cut that part off. <laughs> okay, um, the S in ESG is social. The social pillar refers to an organization's relationship with its stakeholders. Always about the money, always about the money. Examples of factors that a firm may be measured against human capital, manage, human capital managed metrics, like fair wages and environmental engagement. Oh, excuse me, and employee engagement. I have environmental brain. So, the social pillar. Let me start over again. I kind of botch that out. It's examples of factors that a firm may be measured against, including human capital management metrics, meaning that people like their fair wages and employee engagement metrics, but also an organization's impact on the communities in which it operates and on supply chain partners, particularly those in developing countries where environment and labor standards may be less robust. Well, this would be one way to stiff out the third world countries, won't it, because they may not have these same developing economies and stuff, right? Governance. Governance refers to how a company is led and managed. Maybe they'll give me a call. I can tell them. <laughs> ESG analysts will seek to better understand how leadership's incentives are aligned to stakeholder expectations, how shareholder rights are viewed, and at what type of internal controls exist to promote transparency and accountability by leadership. Key highlights. ESG, scroll down here is a framework that helps stakeholders understand how an organization manages risks and opportunities around sustainability issues. ESG has evolved from other historical move movements that focus on health and safety issues, pollution reduction, and corporate philanthropy. ESG has changed how many investments and capital allocations decisions are made. So, um, I don't know if there's much else to say about it. Okay, let me get back here to some of the history. As far back as the 1980s, organizations in the United States were considering how to, to use regulation to manage or reduce pollution and other negative externalities produced in the pursuit of economic growth. So, 1980s, they're thinking, thinky, thinky about ways to um, use regulation, regulation, okay, laws. Um, they sought to also improve employee labor and safety standards. 
and later in the show, I'll be telling you about all the explosions and people murdered and all these different things along the way. But anyways, ESG evolved in the 1990s into what was then known as the corporate sustainability movement. The, this emerged as some management teams wanted to focus on reducing their firm's environmental impacts beyond the reductions that were legally required of them. So some people wanted to do more in the 1990s. Well, good for them. It's widely agreed, amongst them, not me, that corporate sustainability was often employed by management teams as a marketing tool to overstate or otherwise misrepresent efforts and environmental impacts, a practice that would later become known as greenwashing. So this whole thing is about greenwashing. Look up greenwashing. In the early 2000s, the corporate sustainability movement began to integrate ideas about how companies should respond to social issues by the early 2000s. That would become known as corporate social responsibility. That was what they were calling it at the beginning. Corporate philanthropy was a key component of CSR, also known as corporate social responsibility. Although some critics argue that tax incentives made cash donations as attractive as their ultimate economic impact on recipients. Employee volunteerism was another hallmark of CSI. Um, by the late 2010s and early 2020s, ESG started to emerge as a much more proactive instead of reactive movement. ESG has now evolved into a comprehensive framework that includes key elements around environmental and social impact, as well as how governance structures can be amended to maximize stakeholder well-being. Hmm, nothing about cutting down deaths of people, right? ESG has really gone mainstream because of how important the framework has become, become to the investment community. This isn't about saving us, it's about hanging on to those dollars, right? There are a number, growing number of ESG rating agencies and reporting frameworks, all of which have evolved to improve the transparency and consistency of the ESG information going public. The capital markets can be a powerful tool to create change. Well, I guess we're overlooking the fact that the capital markets are the ones that are creating this, right? By restricting access to capital or making the terms under which it's available less favorable, bad actors may be incentivized to improve performance across E, S, or G measures. Conversely, rewarding companies and their and their management teams that are performing well against ESG factors has an equally positive impact on encouraging continuous improvement. Many ESG investment vehicles have emerged, including green bonds, mutual funds, EFTs, and index funds, among others. These publicly traded inst instruments make it easier for investors to align their investment decisions more closely with their own beliefs and values around ESG. Well, 
ESG sounds like a very interesting group. So if you're so intent on this stuff, why not just have one central organization? Why spread it out a bunch of whole bunch of different agencies? So, well, I don't know. ESG. It sounds to me like ESG is really to increase the value of stocks in ways to manipulate those dollars, but that is up for everybody else to decide. This is what ESG means. There's a whole world of information out there, so go take a look. Just type in ESG. timeline of how this stuff got going, right? The timeline is always kind of over-missed how these big scams get started. What's the history of oil? Well, there was a person named Colonel Drake. He had the heralded discovery of oil in Pennsylvania in 1859 and the Spindletop discovery in Texas in 1901 set the stage for the new oil economy. The Texas oil boom, sometimes called the Gusher Age, was a period of dramatic changes and economic growth in the United States sale of Texas, the United States state, state of Texas, during the early 20th century that began with the discovery of a large petroleum reserve near Beaumont, Texas. So it was called the Gusher Age, right? Um, and I talked about this because I didn't think I had it in the files, but I actually did, so... Welcome to my world. Okay, how did this all get started? And this is the part that I was actually there for. Um, it started 1969. How did we get convinced that it was all real? Well, I was there in 1969. I graduated from high school. And due to my uh, behavior, <laughs> I had to leave home and move to Santa Barbara, where luckily I had a soft landing because I had a relative living there. So I was able to stay there for a month or so before I rounded up a couple of jobs. So 1969, the big Santa Barbara oil spill in January. In January 1969, Union Oil began drilling a fifth oil well in their offshore platform A just over five miles from the coast of Santa Barbara, California. On the morning of January 28, 1969, the well blew out, spewing oil and gas. The explosion cracked the seafloor in five places and received a thousand gallons and, and released a thousand gallons of oil an hour. A second blowout in a different well followed on February the 24th. Eventually, the California coastline got devastated by 3 million gallons of crude, the largest oil spill in the nation's history until the Exxon Valdez 20 years later. So uh, the destruction was both so immense and so visible that it sparked the environmental advocacy movement as we know it. 
The spill led to the signing of the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires the creation of environmental impact reports on major projects. The spill created a cultural movement too. For the first time, regular Americans were deeply concerned with environmental health. The following year marked the first time in U.S. history we celebrated Earth Day. And I talk about another segment. I was driving around that time my little Volkswagen with a bumper sticker protesting the oil. So yes, I was, all of us became very implanted in our brains about the Earth. So that meant that all of us boomers who became parents also passed this theory on to our own children, right? See how it all rolls out. So what had happened was they had rolled out cars in the early 19, 1900s. Then the name need for gas became a big thing. Crude oil is converted to gasoline through a relatively simple refining process. The transformation begins with the extraction of oil from the ground, after which it is loaded into large container ships and delivered it to refineries all over the world. The top 10 oil refining countries account for more than 58% of the world's total refinery capacity. The United States is the biggest refiner in the world followed by China, Russia, Japan, and India. Hydrocarbontechnology.com profiles the top 10 countries with the refinery capacity calculated by day. Crude oil is produced in 32 U.S. states and in 25 U.S. coastal waters. In 2021, about 71% of total U.S. crude oil production came from five states. The facts kind of tell a different story, don't they? Um, everybody's running around acting like, oh, I'm going to Saudi Arabia to get some oil. Oh, wait a minute. Let's go over and talk to Venezuela. Oh, wait a minute. Let's plan another trip to talk about oil. <laughs> we're sitting on all the oil, right? <laughs> Boy, we're a stupid society to get all this stuff going, myself included, because I got on board with that Earth Day and never really looked back, right? So, where U.S. crude oil is produced... The top five crude oil producing states and their percentage shares a total of U.S. crude oil production in 2021 were Texas, 42%, New Mexico, 11%, North Dakota, 9%, Alaska, 3%, Colorado, 3.5%. In 19, excuse me, in 2021, about 15.2% of U.S. crude oil was produced from wells located offshore in the federally administrated waters of the Gulf of Mexico. And I'll be talking about all the oil spills and the tragedies that came out of this stuff. Although total U.S. crude oil production declined between 1985 and 2008, annual production increased nearly every year from 2009 through 2019, reaching the highest amount on record in 2019. More cost-effective drilling technology helped to boost production, especially in Texas, North Dakota, 
Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Colorado. U.S. crude oil production declined in 2021, in 2020 and 2021, mainly because of the COVID-19 pandemic on the economy. Funny how that happened, right? Many companies also produce crude oil. About 100 countries produce crude oil. However, in 2021, five countries accounted for about 51% of the world's total crude oil production. Because remember, it goes from crude to refineries. And if you want to know more about the logistics, we got more information at our fingertips at any time in history. Take a look. So the top five crude oil producers and the percentage of shares around the world in 2021. United States, 14.5. Russia, 13.1. Saudi Arabia, Arabia 12.1, Canada, 5.8, Iraq, 5.3. So yeah, um, three types of companies supply crude to the global oil market. Each type of company has different operational strategies and production-related goals. I'm telling you, this thing is the rabbit hole of all rabbit holes. So I'm only giving you the major points here. Okay, international oil companies. International oil companies, also called IOCs, which include ExxonMobil, BP, and Dutch Royal Shell, are entirely investor-owned and are primarily interested in increasing value for their shareholders. As a result, IOCs, the international oil companies, tend to make investment decisions based on economic factors. IOCs typically move quickly to develop and produce the oil resources available to them and to sell their output in the global market. Although these producers must follow the laws of the countries in which they produce oil, all of their decisions are ultimately made in the decision of the company and its shareholders, not in the interest of a government. There's another thing called national oil companies. National oil companies, also known as NOCs, operate as extensions of a government or a government agency, and they hold companies such as Saudi Americo, Aramco, A-R-A-M-C-O, Saudi, Pemex, Pemex is Mexico, the China National Petroleum Corporation, and Petrobras de Venezuela. NOCs financially support government programs and sometimes provide strategic support. NLCs often provide fuels to their domestic consumers at a lower price than the fuels they provide to the international market. They do not always have the incentive means or intention to develop their reserves at the same pace as the investor-owned international companies. Because of the diverse objectives of their supporting governments, NOCs pursue goals that are not necessarily market-oriented. The goals of NOCs often include employing citizens, furthering a government's domestic or foreign policies, generating long-term revenue to pay for government programs, and supplying inexpensive domestic energy. All NOCs that belong to members of the Organization of the Petro-Exporting Communities, OPEC, fall into this category. NOCs with strategic and operations autonomy. The NOCs in this category function as corporate entities and do not operate as extensions of their country's government. 
This category includes Brazil and Norway. These companies often balance profit-oriented concerns and the objectives of their countries with the development of their corporate strategies. Although these companies are driven by commercial concerns, they may also take into account their nation's goals when making investment and other strategic decisions. So who's OPEC? OPEC is the national organi the organization of the petroleum exporting communities. It is a group that includes some of the world's most rich oil companies, countries. Together, the OPEC members at the beginning of 2020 held about 71% of the world's total proven crude oil reserves. And the OPEC members in 2021 accounted for about 37% of the total crude world pop, crude oil production. Each OPEC country has at least one NOC, but must also allow the IOCs to operate within their boundaries. In 2021, the seven countries in the Persian Gulf produced about 30% of total world crude oil, and they held about 48% of world crude crude oil reserves at the start of 2020. Now, do I believe all these numbers? I'm not really sure, but, you know, I think that we just need to think about it, right? It looks to me like it's, uh, well, anyway, I'll leave what I think for later. Um, and um, then I looked up, I have I have some files on the other disasters, but anyway, what was the worst, worst offshore drill in history? Uh, because the, the, the drills and stuff that I focused on later on the show were incidents in this country. So the worst offshore drill in history was in July the 6th, 1988, another year with eights in it, right? Piper, Piper Alpha Disaster, it's called. Piper Alpha Disaster, okay? Lots of details on it. Just type that into YouTube and you'll find a bunch of shows about it. Okay, Piper Alpha Disaster, an explosion and resulting fire on a North Sea oil production platform killed 167 men. The total insured loss was about U.S. 3.4 billion. To date, it is rated as the world's worst offshore oil disaster in terms both of lives lost and impact to industry. Funny another thing with things. So yeah, they like those ace and stuff. I, you know, kind of was planned to be, but. Anyway, so, um, I don't know what I was going to say here. Um, there was a lot, I don't know why I have, let me read through this. There was a lot to food production, which is their target area. Oh, this is me talking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I interject my nose and some of this thing. <laughs> what did I say that? Okay, there's a lot to food production. Um, I believe their target is to starve out the most vulnerable. Lots of issues. It all has to tie to oil. And this is only my view. Think about it for yourself. I think they're starving out the most vulnerable. All those tricks they're pulling with fertilizer, transporting. And I've been looking at the business here, but it's really, really com complex, okay? I'm giving you the version that we can all kind of relate to and absorb. If you want any more, it's a big world out there. Just keep looking, kids. Just keep looking. It's a filthy, filthy deal. But anyway, the oil business in general is a horror since the fake gold rush days and still going on. 
Then, of course, they do things like they, they transport oil via trains, and there's a million explosions going on in that, with trains running through this country, traveling through all these small towns with <laughs> dangerous cargo. But anyway, um, so I think that they're using this, the key oil. I, I think it all relates to oil, right? Um, in some regard, it all relates to oil. And I think this is likely the big trick. Um, so... People think things will change, and that's great. They think it's about Russia. That's another lie. The big plots to wipe us out via food, okay? And what a better way to do it than by manipulating oil. I don't have to. If I have to start telling you why, then um, go listen to my show about how food will control us. And it's over on YouTube. And it, it's, the title says, How Food Will Control Us. I think you can probably figure out where it is. And in that show, I also talk about the laws they have in place to, oh, I don't know, confiscate things from us and you know, all that kind of stuff. Little minor details that people should possibly be focused on other than staring at devices all day. Understand the laws. Understand the laws and know what's ahead. That reduces most of your fear by knowledge, not fear and speculation on social media. So, yeah, the food thing is about sky. You know, here, here's the perfect murder plot, okay? Um, who exactly is going to be able to pin it on these people? Well, I think I've laid out why it's these people, but remember, Everybody has to take my data and then think about it. So, you know, the thing that, um, so, you know, they're always picking a victim, right? They always pick, like, the poor, lazy paid truck drivers. Um, they could point to the cost of fuel to send prices off the roof. You know, their corporate profits are skyrocketing. So let's do a little bit of common sense here, right? Uh, it will take, it, you know, it's just happening, okay? And we're always being told to clean up their horrors, and that's what being kind, decent people, we jump into action, right? They know this about us. Look at how often it's worked in our lifetime. It's hard to really miss any of this pattern, right? Then we get punched down. Everyone allows themselves to think no one was to blame and carry on the exact same abusive. We're like in a, a very toxic, abusive relationship. And people make all kinds of excuses, like, well, this is still a great company, Diane. What are you, some kind of communist? Why don't you move? Those are the comments that I seriously have gotten from people. Seriously. Uh, that if I don't like it here, why didn't I move? Right? Because of this nationalism in this country. People are so up to their ears and waving this red, white, and blue business that it, it has really frosted their brain. So, you know, it's the continuation of patterns is what it is. So we've... we've a, a, been in this abusive relationship for so long that people are just entangled on it, and the fallout is people are abusing each other because of these people. So just think about that when you think about all the people you stopped talking to because of the lies they were spewing here. So, you know, the, the abuser is in charge, so um, this has been going on for a very long time. Um, and we can't change what we do not understand. It's really as simple as that. Why do you think I've been slugging it out for all these years? Because I want to understand how we got here. It didn't just happen overnight, and it wasn't random, okay? So how do they do this oil thing? Well, a barrel of oil is roughly 42 gallons, and that can produce roughly 19 gallons of gasoline. Many other products are produced out of that remaining part. All kinds of dangerous things that we're slathering on ourselves, probably guy call. I don't even have the wherewithal to go into all the fallout of this because 
you know, all we're, we're covering ourselves in oil, okay? Propylene glycol is in all of our, um, you know, face creams and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, we're using the byproducts of petroleum to do eugenics on the public, right? Baby oils slathered on babies, that, that's oil. Uh, yeah, if you want to clean up your ass in the meantime, just get yourself a thing of organic coconut oil from Costco. It costs you about 20 bucks. It'll last you until this thing blows over, so just switch to coconut. Don't try to get too invested in switching everything because that's not the idea in sharing my research is to throw people into some sort of panic mode, but modify what you can. So anyway, so let me get back here. I kind of wandered off track there. So um, two gallons of oil makes one gallon of gas, okay? The rest goes into refineries called crackers. It cracks it up and breaks it apart and makes other products. Cracking and re related refinery processes. We depend largely on crude, the gases associated with it, and natural gas, mainly methane, as a source of liquid fuels, petroleum and diesel, and the feedstock for the chemical industry. Oil and gases associated with it consist of a mixture of hundreds of different hydrocarbons containing any number of carbon atoms from one to over a hundred. Most of these are straight chain saturated hydrocarbons, except for burnt ions, too complicated. But anyways, all I'm saying is everything is coming out of this, right? How much oil does the U.S. military consume? The U.S. military is the largest institutional consumer of oil in the world. Every year, our armed forces consume more than 100 million barrels of oil to power ships, vehicles, aircrafts, and ground operations, enough for over 4 million trips around the Earth, assuming 25 miles per hour per gallon. Using that much oil makes the oil vulnerable to price stakes. Well, the taxpayers pick up the vulnerability there, so that's not a problem. It's just that what's going to happen down the road, well, the military is going to have first claims on this. So let's not play stupid here, right? Can the U.S. military move oil on the battlefield? So because we're on the battlefield, they need all this oil. Right? These are just questions that I came up with that I was wondering about. Moving oil on the battlefield requires large convoys of oil tankers, which become a major target. At the height of operations in Afghanistan, one in 24 convoys ended in a U.S. casualty. The military knows that using oil is a problem. Well, yeah, they, they know these are all problems, right? Okay, oh, then I was looking at where was the first oil found in Texas? One of the first significant wells in Texas was developed near the town of Oil Springs. The site began production in 1866. The first oil field in Texas with a substantial economic impact was developed in 1894. In 1898, the field built the state's first modern refinery. And then I was wondering how was the first oil well dug? Because remember back then supposedly this was pre-cars, right? 1866? <laughs> kind of an interesting dilemma, right? Um, 
and they supposedly, their story, they said the earliest known oil wells were, di were drilled in China in 347 CE. These wells had depths of up to about 240 meters or 790 feet and were drilled using bits attached to bamboo poles. The oil was burned to evaporate brine and produce salt. By the 10th century, extensive bamboo pipelines connected oil wells, oil wells with salt springs. And then, um, I already talked about that was created. Who started the oil industry? How did this horror get started? Well, interesting story. 1848, when the first oil well was drilled by this person named F.N. Semyavat, a Russian engineer in the northeastern part of Baku, known as, as Asperon Peninsula. For those Russians, they'll spell it out. A-S-P-H-E-R-O-N Peninsula. Europe also had a, its share in the oil industry when its first oil wells were drilled in Poland in 1854 by Ignacy Lukowski. When was the first commercial oil well in the United States? And that was drilled by, I talked about him a little bit more recap it here, a person named Edwin Drake in 1859 along the banks of Oil Creek. Is the first commercial oil well in the United States. Drake well was listed in the National Registry of Historical Places and designated as a National Historic Landmark in 1966. It was de designated a Historical Mechanical Engineering Landmark in 1979. And, you know, we hear all this stuff about oil and dinosaurs, but I don't believe any of it, but I just took a look. Um, is oil really from dinosaurs? This means that oil we use today was made from plankton that lived and died when dinosaurs were alive on Earth. So although it does not come from dead dinosaurs, the oil we use today is made from creatures that lived at the same time as the dinosaurs. Well, I don't know. Um, what nation has the most oil production? The United States recently has overtaken Saudi Arabia and Russia as the world's largest producer of oil. U.S. oil production has seen a substantial amount of fluctuation in the recent years and took a major hit during the Great Depression of 2008. And I was looking at what countries have the largest oil reserves. Well, Venezuela holds the world's biggest proven oil reserve followed by Saudi Arabia, while Canada and Russia hold the third and eighth largest oil reserves. The United States is sitting on the world's largest untapped oil reserve, a natural resource that would not a natural resource that would not only mitigate the over 400 billion sent overseas to other countries, but could create untold billions of jobs and put the country on a sound financial foot. wonder why that doesn't happen. <laughs> Easier to trick us into thinking it comes from other countries. Okay. Um, the untapped reserves are estimated up to 2.3 trillion barrels. OPEC, yeah. Okay, we got that picture. Um, 
And there was a report you might want to look for. I'll give you the information. Um, Rachel Maddow, the CIA um, operative on MSNBC, she had done a lot of work, which is actually quite good, and um, about the trains in the oil industry. And she did a lot of reports, and um, it's fascinating stuff. And it's just the key words you're looking for are Rachel Maddow, oil industry, and trains. And it talked about the, um, it was in May of 22, 2014, and it talked about the um, media industry funded reports that were denying elevated safety risks. And then there, she also did a thing about the U.S. military was concerned about old train, oil trains proximity to missiles. Yeah, ask yourself, why should we be forced to buy oil from Libya and pay transport costs? We, we buy oil from these places, we pay all these costs, and I don't know, to me, none of this makes a lot of sense, right? Um, and this, this thing goes into, uh, I really encourage you to look up Rachel Maddow and the train stuff, because it goes into just a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, Okay, so I think that's about it. Um, in 2020, the total revenue of the United States oil and gas industry came to about $110.7 billion U.S. dollars, a decrease from the previous year due to the coronavirus pandemic impacts on the industry. Revenue peaked in 2014 after several years of significant growth before dropping by almost $90 billion in 2015. So yeah, I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of oil here. It seems like there's just a lot of um, self-inflicted chaos, right? What are these people known for? But chaos and crimes and manipulation? I don't know. I think that uh, that's about it for this file, but that'll give you a picture of, uh, and over at the um, website I'll have some um, graphs of uh, the numbers and show you on a map. And remember, this is just known data. We don't really know how much they stolen off the top of this stuff. <laughs> All this data, I would probably safely say you could multiply these numbers by a great deal of stuff that just happens to go missing, right? So anyway, that's enough for that. Obama presidency, the first black guy, uh, he had a disaster of his own. Katrina was owned by Bush, and then there was some talk as far as how was Katrina different than what Obama had, the big oil spill under his watch. Well, let me read you what a few people had to say. Katrina was an example of the type of disaster that the federal government is specifically tasked with handling. And for most of the 90s, it was very good at handling them. But when George Bush became president and some other guy became director of FEMA, which is our national disaster thing here, everything changed. 
So they said that these people didn't know what they were doing, and this one guy left, and then they left this guy named Michael Brown. Remember Michael Brown um, during Katrina Bush toured the area and said, you're doing a great job, Brownie. So anyways, Brownie was some guy who had run dog, um, I don't know, he had something to do with dogs and um, raising dogs or something, and he got put in charge of female. So always remember, this is part of the fix, right? Part of the plan, not the bug in the system, right? They put somebody who appeared to be very incompetent in charge of FEMA for uh, Katrina. So then people went on to say the Deepwater Horizon explosion, the Deepwater Horizon has been renamed. Most of us know it as BP oil spill, okay? But it's called the Deepwater Horizon explosion is almost the exact opposite. There is no federal expertise in capping oil blowouts. There is no federal agency tasked specifically with repairing broken well pipes. There is no expectation that the federal government should be able to respond instantly to a disaster like this. There never has been. For better or worse, it's simply not something that's ever been considered the responsibility of the federal government. In the case of Katrina, you have the kind of disaster that can be addressed by the federal government. In the case of the BP spill, we're faced with a technological challenge that can't be. They could hardly be more different. Well, yes, they are very different, aren't they now? But there is one way in which they're similar. Katrina would have been an immense disaster no matter what. But it was far worse than it had to be because of a conservative administration. One that fundamentally disdained the mechanics of government for ideological reasons. Decided that FEMA wasn't very important. Likewise, the BP blowout was made more likely because that same administration decided that government regulation of private industry wasn't very important and turned the relative agency into a joke. If you believe that government is the problem, not the solution, and if you actually run the country that way for eight years, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But we shouldn't pretend it's inevitable. Well, this is how controlled opposition works. Why do you think we have a two-party system so every party can rag on the last party, right? Okay, um, this was a good piece under Obama administration and the BP oil spill, crisis in the Gulf. Just as the fight for Dodd-Frank bill was heating up and the dust was settling from the battle for the Affordable Care Act, the Obama administration would face one of its gravest political crises. On April the 20th, 2010, the Deepwater Horizon Deep Sea Oil Rig, also known as BP, one of the gravest, uh, exploded in the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Louisiana after the engineers ignored the results of a safety test. The fiery explosion injured 17 members of the crew, killing 11, and set off the largest oil spill in maritime history. 
that would be the BP oil thing, okay? For years, energy companies like BP, the company on whose behalf Deepwater Horizon was operating, had been conducting deep sea drilling for petroleum. This involved drilling beneath the ocean's floor, sometimes as much as 35,000 feet. Such operations were highly risky and expensive, but could also be enormously profitable for the oil companies. The humanitarian and environmental horror of the explosion captured the world's attention and suddenly made it the number one issue for the administration. The event had the effect of shining a spotlight on just how great a humanitarian and environmental price society paid for its price on fossil fuels. Ding, ding, ding. We got them, kids. This is exactly the turning point, right, to get everybody to turn against fossil fuels. So I will continue reading here. It went on to say, no action on climate change. Unfortunately, the situation in the Gulf was also the death kneel, death kneel for the administration's climate change bill. As a sweetener to get Republicans and wavering Democrats from oil and coal producing states on board with the bill, Obama had authorized more offshore drilling. Environmental groups had grumbled but agreed to go along if it was a necessary price for a comprehensive bill. The Deepwater Horizon, also known as the BP spill, completely changed the political calculus. In the wake of the catastrophe, there was little public appetite for more drilling and environmental groups would no longer support any deal that included it. And indeed, after the spill, the administration has little choice but to impose a six-month moratorium on all deepwater offshore drilling. The moratorium, however, gave Republican Lindsey Graham, who was already lukewarm about the bill, the perfect excuse to walk away from the bipartisan climate change bill that he'd been working on with the administration. Legislative action on climate change was dead, okay? These are the same people that are now running around like chickens yelling that climate change is real. Seems to me this was how it all got started, but let me finish on here. Titled, Leading the Response, the Obama administration wanted to ensure that the response to the crisis was timely and effective in delivering relief to the millions of affected individuals and businesses in the Gulf. Under current law, BP was obliged to pay for the cleanup of the spill itself. However, they had limited liability when it came to compensating affected businesses like commercial fisheries and results and resorts that relied on a tourism sector that would no doubt be devastated, and boy was it ever. It went on to say, Obama instructed Secretary of the Interior Ken Salazar that he wanted a firm commitment from BP that they would bear the cost of making whole those whose livelihoods they ruined through their neglect and incompetence. 
The president then tasked senior advisor Valerie Jarrett with coordinating the interagency federal response between the EPA, Department of the Interior, Department of Energy, and other agencies and departments. Remember, Valerie Jarrett was the one who then they later claimed was, I don't know, some agent who they, I don't know, some other made-up deal, Valerie Jarrett and her husband. Anyway, so, so little time, right? Crucially, Valerie Jarrett was also in charge of liaisoning the leaders and officials in the impacted states, all of which had Republican governors. <clears throat> I was playing two, two sides, right? So, initially, BP executives told the public that the explosion had not resulted in any significant dispersal of oil. However, these claims were proven false within days. Engineers discovered major breaks in the underwater pipelines. Initial estimates calculated that approximately 5,000 barrels of oil per day were gushing out, with the company having no idea how to repair the pipeline and stop the leak. The world watched in abject horror and disgust as a massive surface oil slick spread across the Gulf of Mexico, ultimately spanning over 600 square miles. The administrator's top scientists and engineers feared that 19 million gallons would be dumped into the Gulf, an ecological death sentence for the region. Watching the crisis unfold, Obama saw how reckless commercial activity had wrought. Excuse me, start again. Watching the crisis unfold, Obama saw how reckless commercial activity had wrought a devastating impact on the region, with Louisiana alone losing 10,000 acres of land annually due to climate change and erosion. Despite humankind hubris, Obama solemnly observed as we're, we were still largely at the mercy of nature. So yeah, in 2010, they're telling us we're at the mercy of nature. Or how about the mercy of the U.S. Air Force? <laughs> so as the, crisis, as the crisis wore in through the spring and summer, the political mood turned sour for the president and his party. The situation in the Gulf exasperated the administration's existing problems with a polarized and ineffective Congress and a stubbornly slow economic recovery that still featured sky-high unemployment. Although the public had initially, in Obama's views correctly, blamed BP for the spill, that began to change the longer the leak continued with no clear end in sight. Now the public was directing its ire at the administration that had failed to prevent the leak and seemed unable to fix it. The public relations situation got worse when BP installed a camera at the site of the leak, enabling billions of people around the world to see live images of dark, vicious oil being pumped into the Gulf of Mexico, complete with a digital timer showing precisely how long the leak had been going on. Nightly news images of vast oil slicks on beaches and tar-drenched pelicans and fish shocked the outraged nation, with political commentators labeling the oil spill 
Obama's Katrina. The administration's reputation was further damaged when revelations came to light about misconduct at the Minerals Management Service, also known as the MMS, the agency within the U.S. Department of the Interior that was responsible for regulating the nation's oil and gas. Whoops, I guess they slipped up. Reports showed that the MMS had enjoyed a far too friendly relationship with the industry that it was meant to be overseeing, with a revolving door between the agency and the oil and gas companies. There were even revelations of sexual relationships between regulators and executives at these companies. Clearly, MMS was more of a lapdog than a watchdog. While the coverage was undoubtedly embarrassing and cast a stain on his administration's handling of the crisis, Obama believed that the issues at MMS had deepened, had deeper roots, and spoke to larger issues in American politics. Since the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, the conservative movement had convinced large numbers of Americans that the government was the root of the nation's problems. So in 19, Ronald Reagan, 1980, the conservative movement had convinced large numbers of Americans that government was the root of the nation's problems. That's when he turned loose all the mental people and covered that in the 70s. If we could just get government off our backs, would be more we would be more free, prosperous, and a happier society. Obama believed that this had let voters into a self-destructive feedback loop. <laughs> I have to read this part. It's always about the rest of us going crazy, right? So Obama believed, and this is too good not to share. Obama believed that this had let voters into a self-destructive feedback loop in which the public enthusiastically voted for politicians who promised to slash regulations on business and cut funding for agencies like MMS tasked with enforcing public safety. The public also started thinking that understaffing and underfunded agencies lack the resources to properly enforce safety regulations, leading to events like the Deepwater Horizon explosion. Now, I would say probably ignorant government activities, but anyway. And also, the failure of the government to present these disasters affirmed voters and politicians in their belief that the problems lay with government. And therefore, the only solution was to further reduce its role by voting by voting for more right-wing politicians. Now you see how the two-party system works, right? The right can be the ones who don't want any regulation. The lefties, like Obama, who did so much damage that I can't even get into it right now. Obama did all that stuff about the I mentioned the um, you know health insurance, right? <laughs> what a setup. The health insurance was primarily to enter into the um, realm, not cheaper rates for people, but it opened up the door for health care for everybody for pre-existing conditions. Now, who has a pre-existing condition better than a person who thinks they're in the wrong sex? Gee, I think I was born a female, but I'm really a male. So let this insurance policy qualify so those people with those pre-existing conditions can get treatment. See how it's all working, kids? Cause and effect. Cause and effect. And all evil has to come packaged as health. 
The next guy is going to come and help. The last guy failed. See how it works? Okay, well, it certainly appears to me that floods, rain, storms, all of this have to do with, um, well, I don't know, reinforcing our ideas about global warming and leading toward eh, starvation, famine, all this kind of stuff. So, um, let me read this. The scientists have warned that we would see more frequent and more devastating floods in the future due to global warming, heavy rains, dam failures, storm surges, and sometimes man-made changes causing massive floods claiming thousands of lives. It's worth pointing out that not all deaths that occur during floods are caused by drowning. It's the starvation famine, and diseases in the aftermath of the flood that cause maximum fatalities. Okay, now, <clears throat> I have a bunch of um, different statistics on, you know, which were the worst floods, because I was looking at the worst floods, the worst earthquakes, you know, because it's my, my contention that these are, these are all man-made, right? The man making them being the, uh, well, I don't know, the U.S. military <laughs> with their harp operations. So, so anyway, so, and keep in mind that some of these are listed by death rates, so the dates are not necessarily in sequence. So let's start going through these. Three worst disasters in U.S. history. 1900, Galveston Hurricane, 12,000 deaths. I talked extensively about Galveston and that whole trick with Galveston. What a deal in Galveston. Anyway, so um, at the time of the 1900 disasters, see, listen to the wording, right? It's always like disasters, this kind of stuff, right? So at the time of the 1900 disasters, Galveston was thriving as the largest city in Texas. However, with the bustling activities and progress that the town was undergoing, many claimed the authorities were being complacent by not building a seawall to protect the city. On September the 8th, 1900, the city witnessed a high Category 4 hurricane with an estimated wind speed of 145 miles per hour. The storm's origin has never been clear. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to read these, it's not just go. <laughs> okay, so the storm's origin has never been clear. Well, I would say look no further than some sort of, um, well, you know, I think here's what they're doing. They're, they, they're, they're using some sort of uh, electromagnetic thing that they zap into the water, which can cause massive, uh, oh, I don't know, tsunamis, floods, big wind speeds. 
so yeah, if you were to ask me, but you know, who's asking me, right? I would say this was a self-inflicted deal. Okay, so, but, but all their scientists, it's never been cleared any of them. Okay. <clears throat> but there was limited observation ability in 1900. The hurricane caused loss of lives estimated between 6,000 and 12,000. This is where it is not even funny, okay? Lots of people are getting murdered. Every time they pull off one of these deals, these hurricanes, these <coughs> wind, wind factors, all these things that they in fact do, lots of fellow citizens get murdered, okay? So, the estimated... And I believe there's more, but go listen to that show. I went through all this before. Yeah, this this whole deal is just stinks to high heavens. Okay, so anyway, so six thousand to twelve thousand, <clears throat> making it the deadliest natural disaster in the history of the United States. After the storm, survivors were sheltered in temporary U.S. Army tents along the shores. Homes were rebuilt from savage material, and within weeks, the shipping of cotton began again. Yes, always keep that commerce moving, right? <laughs> keep that evil money rolling. Okay, here's another one. 1988. Interesting now that we're having heat waves all across the world, right? Heat waves all over the place. Not only to jack up our utility bills, but likely a good cause of death. Why do I say this? Well... In 1988, the United States was affected. Of course, did you hear me? 1988. They love those numbers, right? The United States was affected by a stifling heat wave that brought with it dangerously high temperatures and drought. The highest temperatures were concentrated around the eastern and central United States. Deaths from heat stress number Deaths, excuse me, deaths from heat stress numbered around 10,000. Elderly populations were particularly vulnerable to heat sickness. 1901, another heat wave in the eastern United States, 9,500 deaths. 1901, and you can just type those words right into that Google machine and look to your heart's content of any and all of these things on your own, kids. 1901, another terrible heat wave occurred in 1901 and was responsible for 9,500 deaths. The heat wave endured for half of June and half of July in the eastern seaboard of the United States. The heat wave, which happened more than 100 years ago, remains one of the worst heat waves of all time. 1901, worst heat wave of all times. I was trying to break some records this year, right? Okay, another one, 1906, San Francisco earthquake and fire, 6,000 deaths. Now, you know what I believe happened was that San Francisco was a, <clears throat> not an earthquake, but had to do with um, dynamite. And also, remember, right at that time, the marvelous people at the Bank of Italy, wink, wink, the Bank of Italy rescued the day and then emerged as Bank of America. Right then, exactly at that juncture time. Interesting, huh? So, go listen to that show. It's pretty detailed and actually quite a fascinating story. They always have a cause and effect, okay? Something disastrous has to happen. 
unfortunately, lots of us have to die during these disasters and be put out and, and suffering in all kinds of ways so that they can pull off some sort of a money scam. Why do I keep saying money is the root of all evil? So, let me tell you what they say about the 1906 San Francisco earthquakes. I don't think I read this during the show that I was talking about it. And I'm sure that show has San Francisco earthquake in the title if you're looking for it. Anyway, so, in the spring of 1906, San Francisco residents were awoken by an earthquake. Although this earthquake lasted less than one minute, it set devastating chains of fire that lasted it set devastating chains of fire that lasted four days. The perceived shaking of the earth resulting from the release of energy created seismic waves. Kind of how dynamite works, right? Now remember, I wasn't there. I am just saying that my belief is that these earthquakes were in fact created by either some sort of son sonic booms right off of the water, something they're doing sonically, or it has to do with setting off dynamite. So anyway, so um, uh, the magnitude of the earthquake was estimated at 7.7 .7 to 7.9 and not only broke the gas pipe that sparked the fire, but also broke the main water pipes, which made it difficult for the fire department to put out the fire. Whoops. This also, I talked about this, I don't know, just in the last show or two, this also triggered them um, grabbing hold of Hetch Hetchy. Interesting story, what happened was, was that Hetch Hetchy is claimed to be more magnificent than the Grand Canyon, a big piece of property. They used the water in Hetch Hetchy to, um, after this earthquake, they were then able to say, oh, well now we got to access Hetch Hetchy because look, in San Francisco during the earthquake, we didn't have access to water. There's always some criminal event tied to everything, but the Hetch Hetchy part is a fascinating part. Because when I first talked about the San Francisco earthquake and how the Bank of Italy then became Bank of America, amazingly, right, exactly at that time. Um, anyway, so yeah, Hetch Hetchy was another part that I wasn't aware of at that time. But yeah, Hetch Hetchy is just a side of this story that is just, it, it's, just it's just theft at the, at the greatest level. So anyway, so they use Hetch Hetchy after the San Francisco earthquake. So, because when you know more, it actually becomes more alarming what these crimes actually consist of, right? So let me get back to what they're saying about this earthquake. Okay, 7.7 .7 to 7.9 broke the gas pipe, sparked the fire. Well, yeah, I mean, did, did the earthquake spark the fire or did somebody just set the fire, right? Um, so, which made it difficult for fire departments to put out the fire. Well, yeah, because they said they didn't have enough water, right? Well, they had to say they didn't have enough water to get Hetch Hetchy, and they had to pull off this whole stunt here to have something to do with changing the banks around, appears to me, right? So there's always a few incidents that take place with these things, and sadly, lots of people get murdered. Okay, another significant one, 1928, Akashabi Hurricane. 3,000 deaths. The Akashabi hurricane of 1928 was one of the deadliest hurricanes 
to have ever occurred in the United States. In particularly, it hit Puerto Rico and Florida. The hurricane development was first reported on September the 6th of 1928, and with the continued observation, the hurricane was quickly developing in different places, including Dakar, Segal, residents of Puerto Rico were advised to relocate to safer places. But when the hurricane did not arrive at the estimated time, they returned to their homes. On the evening of September the 16th, that had been, that was on, they first observed it on September the 6th. Okay, so now we're, everybody said, okay, go back home. So now we're back on to the evening of September the 16th. A storm with a sustained wind speed of 160 miles per hour hit Puerto Rico, killing over 3,000 people and destroying property worth over $50 million. Due to initial pre preparation, the cyclone caused minimum damage as compared to the effects of other cyclones. Well, good to know, but too bad they had to have that cyclone killing thousands of people, right? Okay. In the United States, natural disasters have led to significant loss of life and damage to property. The U.S. government has put into place strategies to counter and prevent such disasters from happening. Talk about cause and effect, right? They cause the disasters and then they put things into place to, to fix them. For example, seawalls have been built along the shores to control effects of cyclone and storms while the public is continually, continuously informed of any looming dangers, especially those living near water bodies. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, so, yeah, okay. So, of the four, of the, of the top ones, and looking down this list here, we have um, Galveston, 1900, Heat Wave, 1988, Heat Wave, 1901, Galveston, 12,000, the Heat Waves were 10,000 and 9,500,000, 9, San Francisco Earthquake, 6,000 people, Okashibi Hurricane, 3,000 people, there was this thing called the Pershing Fire, 2,500 people in 1871. Johnstown Flood, 2,209 2, people, and that was in 1889. There was a hurricane in, um, I can't read that word, 1893, 2,000 people were killed. Okay, Hurricane, hurricane Katrina, 1800 in 2005. Wow, you know, lots of people, um, earthquakes, heat waves, fire and flood, right? And they're claiming that this is all, uh, well, I don't know, climate change? Huh. So then I had, I had been looking at a list of, um, since I started finding all the disasters here, I was looking at lists of disasters around the world. Um, and I read, found this piece that said, There is debate as to what the deadliest disasters of all time actually are due to discrepancies in death tolls, especially with disasters that occurred outside the last century. Following is a list of the ten deadliest disasters in recorded history from lowest to highest estimated death toll. Okay, so, okay, so the lowest one was called the Aleppo, A-L-E-P-P-O, earthquake 
in Syria in the year 1138. Supposedly 230,000 people dead. Next one, number nine. Indian Ocean Earthquake. That was in Tusami. That was a big deal. That was at the Indian Ocean in 2004. 230,000 people dead. And that was the one that I believe, no, all kidding aside, that one, you know, that's, that's where I started wondering about them doing these sonic things and doing the big ones right off shores and stuff. So just think about it. I mean, it, it seems very possible to me, okay? So anyway, so yeah, that, that high death toll. Then there was another earthquake in China. This was in 1920, Haiyan earthquake. 240,000 dead. Then another one, Tangshan, T-A-N-G-S-H-A-N earthquake in China in 1976. 242,000 people dead. Another earthquake in Antioch, called the Antioch, A-N-T-I-O-C-H. I was spelling these out, so hopefully you would jot down a few of them and go look because these are these are significant significant amounts of people that are dead okay um, just because they're not exactly in our home country um, well it looks like murder to me okay but it looks like murder to me so anyhow um, okay Antioch earthquake that is in Syria and Turkey Okay, in supposedly in the year 526, 250,000 people dead. Now, I think some of these old dates may just be there to get us to believe that earthquakes have happened for a long time. You get what I mean? When really they start happening, you know, in, in the 1800 area. Because um, I think I've said in a show about they started, they came up with their knowledge of uh, dynamite and stuff in the 1800s. So I, I'm not really saying because I'm reading these things happening in the 1500s and whatever. The, I'm, I'm not agreeing that those dates might have happened. But anyway, so there's another one. Um, there was a major Indian India cyclone, and that was in India in 1839, and that left 300,000 people dead. There's another one called the Shanxi, S-H-A-A-N-X-I earthquake, and that's in China, 1556, 830,000 people dead. Okay, there's a cyclone called the Bola, B-H-O-L-A, that hit Bangladesh, 1970, 500,000 to Sorry, I didn't mean to click the microphone. 500,000 to 1 million dead, 1970, okay? Yellow River flood in China, 1887. 900,000 to 2 million dead. Yellow River, oh, excuse me, Yellow River also flooded in 1931, and that left 1 million to 4 million dead. Okay, and then it says um, excessive rainfall over central China in July and August of 1931 triggered the most deadly natural disaster in world history. It was called the Central China Floods of 1931. The Yangtze River 
overstocked its banks as spring snow melt mingled with the over 24 inches of rain that fell during the month of July alone. The reason I'm reading this part is because look what's going on in China right now. Massive, massive. If they're not having floods in these outlying areas, they are being hit by the dams releasing water supposedly because of floods, right? So anyhow, um, so what's next here in this? Just What do they say about floods? Okay, floods are one of the strongest forces of nature. While ancient Egyptian civilization considered it a blessing, floods have wrecked havoc throughout human history. Regions prone to floods have witnessed the loss of countless lives and destruction of the infrastructure and properties time and again. Yeah, floods are just a huge, huge, huge deal. Um, it's, you know, right back to water, right? And the water they spill off is... The water that gets spilled off or floods becomes water that is no longer available for, oh, I don't know, things like drinking water. So anyway, so there's a bunch of them that happened in Netherlands in 1912, the North Sea flood. Um, they have, my point here is if you're interested in looking further, just look up worst floods in history. You know, did, did your area ever flood? Um, I had one here I wanted to talk about specifically. Let me see here. Yeah, I don't know between between floods, you know, floods and fire. Um, it would it would really be something that could take like oh I don't know years and years and years to try to amass just the data alone on the um, destruction these people are causing, right? And a lot of this destruction does a few different things. It whips up fear, whips up uncertainty, and it. Um, is control. How much better to control somebody than by burning them out? Burning them out then removes their water, then it removes all their other stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. There, there's just floods and storms and stuff everywhere. Um, typhoons, all these things in China. Oh, there's a couple more. There's one here I want to talk about that has to do with the oil rigs, okay? Um, because I've been talking in one of these segments as far as the um, deal with how the global warming got started by the oil industry. Um, so I had been looking at other oil rig disasters. So I'll put this one in here also. Okay, and that was the... Um, that one is called the North Sea Disaster on Piper Alpha. 1988 and that remains one of the worst oil rig disasters ever in 1988 you know was back when they were starting a lot of this stuff going right and it also was impacting our minds because matter of fact I remember it would have been let me see 1970 we had a big oil spill in Santa Barbara and um, the company was um, Union 76 I remember I had a bumper sticker <laughs> that had to do with that. So, and I'm 100% sure in doing all this research because I've been thinking about it that in my own brain, see, I used to really feverishly believe that global warming was real, right? Well, until I figured out that the U.S. military's role in all that. But I used to, of course, believe it was all real. 
I used to fill up those recycling bins, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, so um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. So yeah, so they probably got into my consciousness back during one of these big oil spills because you know I in fact believed all of this stuff as it went along. Because remember, who who would have guessed that? somebody was really doing these things like oh on purpose or either just to gain gain they're, they're so they want money so bad that they would do these unsafe deals to gain more money at the risk of people's lives it, it's a really hard deal to wrap your head around what evil will do to get ahead right so anyway so yeah so um it was the worst disaster they always call it tragic events, claimed the lives of 167 people on July the 6th, 1988. And this was caused by a communication error between shift changes resulted in a gas leak which triggered multiple explosions on the platform. Of the 226 workers, only 61 survived. Okay, so the Piper Alpha was this rig and it um, exploded and sank on the 6th of July 1988 and yeah it's just um, I don't know um, I think I have more on that here in a bit so let me keep moving along um, the platform accounted for approximately 10% of North Sea oil and gas production well, of course, with all of these disasters, it would, of course, put into our minds that, that um, all of this hunting for oil would be be dangerous, right? And we would want to see other people be put at risk. So, you know, that was part of the path we got led down to this um, deal about oil is, you know, burning coal is bad, but this other process is better. Pretty, pretty simple child psychology, if you ask me. Um, yeah. Um, this is the top, I was looking at the uh, top list of oil rig disasters, um, and like I said, I would encourage you to look for yourself. I really could have gone on forever, so I'm just trying to look at the top ones and the ones more specifically having to do with oil rigs. Okay, the top one, Santa Barbara. The oil spill was 1969, January. In January 1969, Union Oil began drilling a fifth well on their offshore platform. On the morning of January 28th, the well blew out, spewing oil and gas. The explosion cracked the seafloor in five places and released 1,000 gallons of oil an hour. A second blowout in a different well followed on February 24th. Eventually, the California coastline got devastated by 3 million gallons of crude, the largest oil spill in the nation's history, until the Exxon Valdez 20 years later. The destruction was both so immense and so visible that it sparked the environmental advocacy movement as we know it. See, bingo, always, always a cause, always a time and point if we look hard enough, right kids? This is what, because it even got into my brain, and I've been trying to think of, I don't remember, I can't remember what my bumper sticker said, but 
anyway, so, um, so it said, the spill led to the signing of the National Environmental Policy Act, which required the creation of environmental impact reports on major product projects. See, this is, there's always a specific point in time when we become convinced that there's a huge issue and we need to help figure this out, right? All the while they're perpetuating the issue themselves. So anyway, so... The spell created a cultural movement. For the first time, regular Americans were deeply concerned with environmental health. The following year marked the first time the U.S. celebrated Earth Day. So yeah, um, and there was this quote I had from this guy, this book, um, from March of 1980, it said... Um, Oh, this is from a different rig. Okay. In March of 1980, so this other thing had happened in 1969, okay? So then in March of 1980, one of the deadliest oil rig accidents in history occurred because of a fatigue crack caused by a bad welding job. So, um, yeah, that was a really bad one. Um, I mean, the disasters just go on and on and on. Um, that killed over 212 men on board. Um, and the re tragedy led to new requirements for lifeboat hooks and new command structures to facilitate faster abandonment of sinking vessels. Yeah, because there was basically uh, not much of an evacuation plan. Okay, another big one was the Ocean Ranger disaster in February 1982. The Ocean Ranger was a mobile offshore drilling that sank near Canada because of mobile oil. Okay, then we have the Deepwater Houston. That was the one that is BP oil spill. I've talked about that in some other segments. But they just have renamed it Deepwater Horizon, okay? When you read the words Deepwater Horizon, you're really talking about BP, the people who, in fact, coined the term climate change. So, yeah, see how it all kind of ends up cycling all the way back, right? Everything just cycles right back to the corporate greed at the top. For what? People are being murdered. Lives are being lost. People disrupted greatly. And I haven't even, and I won't even have time in this show to go into the the underbelly of the oil business, which means the lives of the people who work this horrific business. It is something else. These are the people that got sold all of those uh, toxic FEMA trailers. And anyway, so much time, so much time. But anyway, so yeah, this is the tragedy of the oil business. It is, in fact, their liquid gold. And what a great way to control people, right? What a great way to control us. segment let's talk about oil spills. I'm not totally convinced that these oil spills aren't on purpose or you know could be that you know could be a combination of both right. This is organized in terms of um, the amount of 
destruction, you know, gallons of stuff lost, gallons of oil lost. April 2010, the big one, the one we're talking about today, Deepwater Horizon, also known as BP, Gulf of Mexico, 50 miles off the coast of Louisiana, an estimated 200,000 gallons a day. March 1989, there was a reef collision with the tanker Exxon Valdez, Prince William Sound, Alaska, 10 plus million gallons. That was the one where they claimed that the guy was drunk and ran into that reef. <laughs> they said, I think it was the captain they claimed was drunk. Okay, December 1976, ran aground, Nantucket Island. The tanker was called Argo Merchant. They lost 7.7 .7 million gallons. September to August 2005, Hurricane Katrina. This is where I think they got this all going in our brains, right? It's supposedly various sources. Seven million gallons were lost during Hurricane Katrina. Kind of changed our ideas about global warming. At least it did mine. I thought it was really real at that point, right? Look at those people suffering. If we don't do something, we're all going to be like them. Well, we're all going to be like them anyhow, right, kids? Okay, June the 8th, 1990, an explosion aboard the tanker Mega Borg. 60 miles off Galveston, Texas, back at Galveston again, 5.1 million gallons. November 2000, 2000 excuse me, ran aground, a tanker called Westchester. Port Sulphur, Louisiana, 567,000 gallons. January 2010, a collision. The tanker was called Eagle Otome, O-T-O-M-E. That happened at Port Arthur, Texas, 462,000 gallons. July the 25th, a collision. Unnamed barge. New Orleans lost 419,000 gallons. December 2004, ran aground. The ship was called Selendang AYU. It happened at the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. Now keep in mind, I'm only talking about the oil spills in this country here, right? Psychopath headquarters, also known as the United States of America. Okay, that one ran aground, and that one lost 337,000 gallons. August of 1993, a collision with this barge called Bouchard. Tampa Bay, Florida, 336,000 gallons. And that is the top 10 list of oil things that happen in this country. And looking back over this list I just read to you, it appears to me, well, supposedly BP had an explosion, the Deepwater Horizon probably did have an explosion, right? But how do you explain Reef collisions, ran aground, explosions, ran aground, collision, collision. Uh, I don't know. I would have to kind of wonder with all these collisions and all these things that ran aground if this was a plot, but not going to go there. Just something to think about, right? Um, oil spills such as the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill are impactful environmental disasters that have long-lasting effects to the landscape native species and inhabitants who d depend on the area. As the name implies, an oil spill refers to any uncontrolled release of crude oil, gasoline, fuels, 
or other oil byproducts into the environment. Oil spills can pollute land, air, or water. Although the term oil spill often makes people think of spills in the ocean and coastal waters, such as the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, or the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska, it also refers to land spills too. Spills are incredibly harmful to those species that come in direct contact with the polluted areas. And depending on the size and scale of an oil spill, the recovery time can take days to decades. I would also argue maybe they never get cleaned up, right? They, they go, go look it for yourself. The whole idea is for you to go look for yourself also, okay? Go dig around. You can find a ton of information about this stuff. They've been doing releases about the everlasting impact to the region after all this. Imagine this. After the BP oil spill or the Horizon, Deepwater Horizon oil spill, I don't know, within a year or two, the restaurants are back open selling fresh seafood. Well, I don't know. Um, I would have to say that part of this could be rigged up, right? Either that or they have some pretty lousy people in charge of these big tanks running around and they seem to run ground places, right? So, yeah, either they need better plans, better people driving these boats or whatever you call it, or it's all planned, right? Now, I'm not going to get all crazy about trying to figure out which ones are planned, but in looking at this list, between explosions and running to ground, they seem to have a problem getting these ships from one point to the other with that oil in it, right? So that's how it works. Let's talk about Hetch Hetchy. I can't leave this one alone. <laughs> Why can't I leave it alone? Because, I don't know, I had a note to myself in one of these files about Hetch Hetchy. It said, this was a note to myself, it said, Interesting how the public tide turned after the San Francisco earthquake. There is something to do with fracking and Katrina I still need to get back to. Well, I'm here now, right? So, anyway, so, Hetch Hetchy was such a theft that we need to talk about it. Because I believe there were two reasons for the San Francisco uh you know, explosions and fires, was likely because of Hetch Hetchy and also because of that deal with the uh, Bank of Italy becoming the Bank of America. Go look at that show. It has uh, it has in the title somewhere. But anyhow, so let's talk about Hetch Hetchy. Where did the name come from? Well, Hetch Hetchy comes from the Native American Sierra Miwok, M-I-W-O-K language, and refers to a grass with edible seeds that grows in the valley. It was first used by Joseph Screech, who in 1850 became the first non-American, non-native American to enter the valley. Screech noted the Paiutes, P-A-I-U-T-E-S, had formerly inhabited Hetch Hetchy and still gathered seeds, roots and acorns in and around the valley. Acorns are available in the valley but are rare elsewhere in the high country. In 1867, Charles F. Hoffman of the California Geological Survey conducted the first survey of the valley. 
What I find interesting is this, is that supposedly, according to their story, um, people were roaming around much earlier than that, so it's kind of amazing that they finally found their way there, right, <laughs> a couple hundred years later. <laughs> so anyway, it's St. Augustine in New Mexico, New Mexico's pretty close to, close to California. They were already there, they say, in 1610. Um, they say the Spanish was there and, you know, the Florida coastline, that whole deal with Mexico and stuff. So anyhow... Um, People have lived in the Hetch Hetchy Valley for over 6,000 years. Not sure about that. But anyway, Native American cultures were prominent in the 1850s. Notice how we keep continuing to circle around the mid-1800s. Go look at cemeteries around your area. Tell me if you find any gravestones earlier than the 1800s. So when the first settlers in the United States arrived in the Sierra Nevada, would be the 1850s, right? During summer, people of the Miwok and Palulite came to Hetch Hetchy from the Central Valley in the west and the Great Basin in the east. The valley provided an escape from the summer heat of the lowlands. They hunted and gathered seeds and edible plants to furnish themselves winter food, trade items, and materials for art and ceremonial objects. Today, descendants of these people still use milkweed, deer grass, brocken fern, and willow and other plants for a variety of uses including baskets, medicines, and string. Meadow plants unavailable in the lowlands were particularly valuable resources for these tribes. So it was obviously a pretty significant part for the Native Americans because it had things that they wanted to use. For thousands of years, Native Americans subjected the valley to controlled bushfires, which prevented forests from taking over the valley meadows. Periodic cleaning of the valley provided ample space for the growth of the grasses and shrubs they relied on, as well as additional room for large game animals such as deer to browse. In the 19th century, the first white visitors to the valley did not realize that Hetch Hetchy's extensive meadows were the product of millennial management by Native Americans. Instead, they believed the valley was purely a product of ancient ge geological forces or divine intervention. This was fundamental to its allure as a destination subject. So, why did they think that this valley was purely a product of, or divine intervention? I don't know. Okay, so um, this part I, I had to kind of laugh about. Um, they're all always into these phallic symbols and dicks, right? <laughs> okay, um, the valley's name may be derived from Miwok word hatch, hatchy. That's spelled the same way, H-A-T-C-H-H-A-T-C-H-I-E, all one word, which means edible grasses or magpie. It is likely that the edible grass was blue dicks. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Chief Tenya of the Yosemite Valley's Awahachi tribe claimed that Hetch Hetchy was my walk for Valley of the Two Trees, ref ref referring to a pair of yellow pines that once stood at the head of Hetch Hetchy. My walk names are still used for features including the Tule Fall, the Wapama Fall, and the Koala Rock. While its cousin, Yosemite Valley to the south, had permanent Miwok settlements, Hetch Hetchy was only seasonally inhabited.
this was likely because of Hetch Hetchy's narrow outlet, which in years of heavy snow melt created a bottleneck in the Tulum River, T-U-O-L-U-M-N-E, which is part of this plot, and the subsequent flooding of the valley floor. So what did these geniuses decide to do? Um, Hetch Hetchy, this is the current information, Hetch Hetchy is a valley, a reservoir, and a water system in California in the United States. The glacial Hetch Hetchy Valley lies in the northwestern part of Yosemite National Park and is drained by the Tulum River. For thousands of years before the arrival of settlers in the 1850s, the valley was inhabited by Native Americans who practiced subsistence hunting and gathering. During the late 19th century, the valley was renowned for its natural beauty, often compared to that of Yosemite Valley, but also targeted for the development of water supply for irrigation and municipal interests. The controversy over damming Hetch Hetchy became mired in the political issues of the year. The law authorizing the dam passed Congress on December the 7th, 1913. And in 1923, the Oshanaki Dam was completed on the Toulon River, flooding the entire valley under the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir. The dam and reservoir are the center of the Hetch Hetchy Project, which in 1934 began to deliver water 160 miles west of San Francisco and its client municipalities in greater San Francisco Bay. Yeah, so uh, according to San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, Hetch Hetchy Reservoir can store as much as 117 billion gallons for the Hetch Hetchy Regional Water System, which serves San Francisco, Santa Clara, Alameda, and San Mateo counties. 20 of San Francisco Public Utility Commissions, well, I, I, let me see, I, I got confused there. Um, well, the bottom line is this. Listen to the cities that it, that it gives water to, okay? San Francisco, Santa Clara, well, I'm from that area. I work in Silicon Valley, okay? San Francisco and Santa Clara are homes of Silicon Valley, started in the Santa Clara, San Jose area, so it's kind of funny that they conveniently gave themselves all, <clears throat> excuse me, gave themselves all this water, isn't it? Hetch Hetchy has generated controversy since it was first proposed as a source of water following the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Congress had to approve the project because it was located in a national park and it passed the Raker Act, R-A-K-E-R Act, in 1913 to do so. John Muir and the Sierra Club unsuccessfully fought the reservoir's establishment since it required flooding a scenic mountain valley in a national park. After the reservoir's construction in the 1920s, various groups have lobbied to restore the Hetch Hetchy. San Francisco voters have demonstrated their opposition to finding an alternative water and power source. Hetch Hetchy also generates electricity for the city. In 2012, voters rejected a proposition that would have funded a $8 million study on how best to drain the valley. 
So, uh, yeah, um, different presidential administrations have also tried to address the issue, including those under FDR, Ronald Reagan, and George W. Bush. In 2007, excuse me, the Bush administration attempted to allocate funds to study removing the dam and restoring the valley. Well, yeah, I bet, I bet they probably said they were right. Draining Hetch Hetchy without depriving Bay Area residents of their water supply could cost hundreds of millions of dollars at a minimum, according to the public utilities. The advocacy group for, to restore Hetch Hetchy took its case for draining the reservoir to court, arguing in 2015 that the reservoir violates the California Constitution, specifically the mandate within Article X, Section 2, that requires diversions that requires diversions for all water use must be reasonable. <laughs> There's nothing reasonable about these people. Um, the question was, what constitutes unreasonable method of diversion of water? Restore Hetch Hetchy claimed the phrase had a broad meaning and that it had previously applied in an environmental context. San Francisco maintained the phrase only pertained to water that was wasted and there was no claim that the city wastes water, so it was a mute issue. In 2016, a Tullamane County Superior Judge dismissed the lawsuit, saying restoring Hetch Hetchy's arguments were preempted by the Raker Act, R-A-K-E-R Act. The judge also noted the provision of the state constitution used to support the arguments to remove the dam was not passed until 1920 years, five years after the dam was built. Restore Hetch Hetchy subsequently, subsequent appeal to the ruling was rejected by an appellate court on the California Supreme, 20, California Supreme Court in 2018. Yeah, funny how that works, right? I guess they didn't put in the right word, so they uh, didn't pass the next one until 1928. All those lawyers, all those lawyers, right? And then I had some questions that I went through. What is the Hetch Hetchy project and why is it controversial? Hetch Hetchy has generated controversy since it was first proposed as a source of water following the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. I think there were rumblings about Hetch Hetchy before the uh, San Francisco earthquake. But I just think, I just kind of remember that. But if it gets in my brain later and I can't shake it loose, I'll go and look. <laughs> Congress had to approve the project because it was located in the National Park. Yeah, well, I don't know. Um, I think that this was a big heist of public property, if you ask me. And um, there's a couple of clips from this that um, I'll make sure that Archie puts over at the website. And um, there was a, a YouTube video I found that was interesting, and it was how San Francisco stole Hetch Hetchy. And Harrison Ford did a thing with Discover Hetch Hetchy, which was interesting. So, yeah, um, I think that um, this thing was just a robbery, right? They just had, they, you know, they. what I want to know about these public lands is this, okay? The public lands always get used for different things that I'm not going to talk about them now because I don't have the data in front of me. But um, I think that... Um, What's under all those public lands, right? Is something hiding under all these lands? I mean, the, the U.S. government has like, oh, I don't know, I had it here somewhere. Um, 
all these golf courses. The U.S. military controls golf courses for some for some re strange reason. This is on my brain. Okay. <laughs> um, is there something under those golf courses? Is there something under this Hetch Hetchy deal? Is there something under all these national parks? I really don't know, but for some reason, it seems to not be able to leave my brain. And when these things keep going into my brain, then I want to look at it later, right? Because Hetch Hetchy was within the Yosemite National Park and protected by the federal government, leaving it up to Congress to decide the valley's fate. National opinion divided between giving San Francisco the right to dam the valley and preserving the valley from development. At the heart of the debate was a conflict between conservationists who held that the environment should be used in a conscientious manner to benefit society and preservationists who believed that nature should be protected, save from human interference. Siding with the conservationists, San Francisco citizens argued that the women siding, how are they siding with them? They argued that the reservoir was necessary for the health of their city. On the other side, preservationists led by John Muir argued that Congress should protect the Hetch Hetchy Valley from destruction. Muir and his allies believed that nature should be enjoyed for its beauty and not merely used for its resources. Well, I'm not going to go any further into this one right this second here, but I got a feeling I might be back to it because for some reason, you know, I looked up all those golf courses that this country has. Um, the U.S. military owning golf courses kind of caught my attention a long time ago. I probably brought it up at some point because it keeps rattling through my brain. The U United States military has 145 golf facilities for our service members to play and use as a means of breaking away from daily stresses that come with a job. Well, why don't we all get golf courses right? <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying the service members weren't hardworking. My father was a service officer, so don't come after me for joking about it, okay? Um, yeah, it seems funny that the service members get golf courses, right? <laughs> I mean, sorry, just can't help but note this, right? Um, it seems like, uh, well, if we have a three structure, right? We have the Vatican, which controls the, um, the religions and their scientists and stuff. We have the Washington, D.C., which controls the military. And then we have the city of London for the money. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting that their military group has all these golf courses all over the place <laughs> to relieve their stress. <laughs> so, um, it, it was described as one of the most beautiful places on earth. So, I don't know why would they, they would take such a magnificently beautiful place described as the most beautiful place on earth along with Yosemite and dredge it for uh, dredge it for water to feed where these uh, mafia people now Silicon Valley people live right so, I think they were just protecting their own water so for the future right so it's kind of funny that originally Silicon Valley was in started in San Jose Santa Clara area when I worked at Intel they were located in Santa Clara and that would have been 1979. They were there a few years before that, but yeah, um, Santa Clara's Santa Clara was where Intel and all of them hung out. Now Google and them are in Mountain View. I used to live in Mountain View. That was the last place I lived in that dreadful place. But yeah, um, so yeah, it, it's clearly pretty mafia run, right? It seems like they um, 
because 1871, John Muir first visited it, and um, they started looking for permits to go into Hetch Hetchy, and then um, they didn't um, they didn't get away with it originally because. Um, you know, some people are saying that the earthquake was started, but I think that it happened, according to this timeline, sorry, this file is kind of a mess, but according to this timeline I dug up, I think that um, the dates don't add up to me, so I have to think about all this stuff, okay, because Muir eventually, supposedly visits Hetch Hetchy in 1871. In 1873, he first writes about the beauty of Hetch Hetchy Valley in the Boston Weekly. And there's transcripts of that around. 1882, City of San Francisco begins to consider Hetch Hetchy Valley as one of several places for a location of a reservoir. 1890, Yosemite National Park was established, including Yosemite's, Yosemite Valley's less famous cousin, Hetch Hetchy. In 1890, San Francisco Mayor John Phelan first proposes damming the Hetch Hetchy Valley to create a reservoir for San Francisco. 1892, Sierra Club was formed. 1901, Mayor James Phelan first files for water rights in the Hetch Hetchy Valley. That's why you have to look at multiple sources, kids, because they, they, they put things in different places, okay? You have to kind of keep hunting around. And um, it would help if I had an assistant, so I wouldn't have to drag it through my hunting around, but the way it goes, right? 1903, this mayor felon applies to the Interior Department for a permit for water storage in Hetch Hetchy Valley. Secretary of the Interior, Ethan Hitchcock, promptly denies the request since Hetch Hetchy is in a national park. <clears throat> the city of San Francisco appeals, arguing it will only enhance the beauty of the park to have a reservoir. <laughs> Later, Muir would respond to this argument, and Muir said, as, as well may damning New York City's Central Park would enhance its beauty. <laughs> By the end of the year, Secretary Hitchcock denies the appeal. 1904, first of many Sierra Club high trips to include Hetch Hetchy Valley. 1905, Mayor Phelan again applies for water rights to Hetch Hetchy and the permit is once again denied. John Muir and William Colby launch eight-year campaign to provide to prevent Hetch Hetchy from being dammed for a reservoir. 1906, the San Francisco earthquake and fire gives new impetus to the idea of enlarging the city's water supply. Yeah, that's how it works, right? 1907, so right after the earthquake, San Francisco city officials meet with Secretary Garfield, who was then the, um, he was the Secretary of Interior for this country. They met on July the 24th to lobby for damming Hetch Hetchy. On August the 30th, the Sierra Club Board of Directors adopt a resolution that addresses opposing the damming. So they began this big campaign. Um, 1908, 
On May the 7th, the city files a petition asking the Secretary of the Interior to reopen the San Francisco's application for water rights, requesting both Lake Eleanor and the Hetch Hetchy Valley. The city's application promised to develop Lake Eleanor first to full capacity before beginning development of the Hetch Hetchy site, a promise they never fulfilled. John Muir writes in the Sierra Club Bulletin that to dam Hetch Hetchy Valley may as well dam, may as well dam for water tanks, the people's cathedrals and churches, for no holier temple has ever been consecrated on the, by the heart of man. Willing, willing to compromise, he urges President Roosevelt to give the city only Lake Eleanor. Muir sends a message to the 1908 Governor's Conference on Converse, Con Conservation. Nothing dollarable is safe, however guarded. Thus, the Yosemite Vet Park, the beauty glory of California and the nation, nation's own mountain wonderland, has been attacked by spoilers ever since it was established. <clears throat> and this strife, I suppose, must go on as part of the internal battle between right and wrong. But the city's permit application is approved by Secretary of the Interior James Garfield, who has never visited Hetch Hetchy. Only four days after he received it, pretty quick, right? They get this thing, and Garfield whips into action four days later. Okay, Congress soon schedules hearings. Let's see here. And the Sierra Club produces circulars, produce circulars opposing the dam. In 1909, in congressional hearings, the city reverses itself and insists that it must have both Lake Eleanor and Hetch Hetchy Valley. Meanwhile, the Spring Valley Water Company again offers a buyout to the city of San Francisco, a far less costly option than building the Hetch Hetchy system. So yeah, um, I don't know. In 1910, after considering the commission's report and visiting Hetch Hetchy Valley personally in February, Taft's Secretary of the Interior, Richard Belling, suspends the Interior Department approval for the Hetch Hetchy right-of-way and asks the city to show cause why Hetch Hetchy Valley should not be re removed from the Garfield Grant. Anyways, 1911, this guy resigned, and um, this interior guy visits Hetch Hetchy. In 1912, um, Secretary Fisher convenes a hearing on Hetch Hetchy and advocates for both sides' testimony. So yeah, I guess they wanted to hear from the um, Sierra Club and John Muir and um, the city. You know, they're both sides of the same coin. Um, William Woodrow Wilson is elected president and would appoint former San Francisco. <laughs> this is Ferguson. <sighs> Woodrow Wilson is elected president. I was just at 1911, wasn't I? Anyway, so, um, and he would appoint former San Francisco city attorney Franklin Lane as secretary of the interior. Lane supports damming Hetch Hetchy, though he never visited it. San Francisco renews its campaign to damn Hetch Hetchy. 
and they hired a civil engineer. 1913, in February, the Interior Secretary's engineer's report recommends damming Hetch Hetchy, though acknowledging other opinions exist, options exist. On March the 1st, three days before leaving office, Secretary Fisher decides that he lacks the statutory authority to grant a permit to San Francisco, thus throwing the decision back to Congress. Over the next year, Congress holds hearings and the city lobbies hard. The New York Times repeatedly opposes the dam of Hetch Hetchy, along with most other newspapers of the country. Senators received thousands of letters opposing it. So, yeah, um, 1914, it was the last Sierra Club outing to Hetch Hetchy Valley. John Muir dies on December 24th. 1923, construction of O'Shaughnessy Dam completed at a cost of $100 million and the lives of 67 men and one woman were killed during that time. The project transports water 160 miles by gravity alone to San Francisco and 32 other Bay Area communities. 1924, San Francisco voters approve a bond proposition for $10 million to pay for a series of tunnels. These people love those tunnels, don't they? That would deliver water through the Sierra Coast Range. 1928, San Francisco voters approve $24 million in bonds to help further the Hetch Hetchy Dam project. 1934, completion and dedication of the Hetch Hetchy system, water, Water is first delivered to San Francisco from the Oshaughnessy's Reservoir. 1938, the Oshaughnessy Dam is raised to its current 430-foot level. 1947, San Francisco voters approved $25 million for a second pipeline for the Hetch Hetchy system. 1955, Sierra Club produces a film called Two Yosemites. You can find that online very easily. Two Yosemite by the Sierra Club. Just type those words into the Google machine. It was filmed and narrated by David Brower, a passion... Uh, anyway, in 1961, San Francisco voters approved $115 million in bonds to extend the existing Hetch Hetchy system. And Sierra Club in 1970s started talking about removing it, and yeah, here we are today, right? Here we are today. I think it's because they wanted to, I mean, there's more to this, you know, I'm not going to drag through the rest of it because I think we got the point. Funny how that guy, um, the attorney in San Francisco, got the office to be the job of the interior part, right? <laughs> That's why they have all those attorneys, kids. The attorneys fight both sides, and the attorneys are on their team. The attorneys would come under the, um, I think the attorneys, I have to look at this, because of the three structure, you know, the Vatican, the City of London, and the Washington, D.C. I think the attorneys, I don't know, do they come under the Vatican, or do they come under Washington, D.C.? Or, I'll have to figure out where the attorneys fit into this slot. So, anyways, that's it on Hetch Hetchy. I'll be back if I have more about it. Not in, the, not in this series, okay? I'm going to be putting this whole show about oil to bed any minute now. So, yeah, that's all I know about Hetch Hetchy still. So.
okay, because I decided to talk about Hetch Hetchy, I wanted to go back to who really got all this uh, stuff going as far as preserving wildlife and things, right? Well, that person would be a man named John Muir, M-U-I-R. John was born April 21st, 1838, died December 24th, 1914. John was also known as John of the Mountains, <laughs> father of the National Parks. He was an influential Scottish-American naturalist, author, environmentalist, philosopher, botanist, zoologist, glaciologist, <laughs> an early advocate for the preservation of wilderness in the United States. Well, how'd that go, John? Not too well, huh? His letters, essays, and books describing his adventures in nature, especially in the Sierra Nevada, have been read by millions. His activism helped to preserve the Yosemite Valley and Sequoia National Park, and his example has served as an inspiration for the preservation of many other wilderness areas. The Sierra Club, which he co-founded, is a prominent American conservation organization. In his later life, Muir devoted most of his time to the preservation of the western forests. As part of the campaign to make Yosemite a national park, Muir published two landmark articles on wilderness preservation in the Century Magazine called The Treasuries of the Yosemite, and features of the proposed Yosemite National Park. This helped support the push for U.S. Congress to pass a bill in 1890 establishing Yosemite National Park. The spiritual quality and enthusiasm toward nature expressed in his writings has inspired readers, including presidents and congressmen, to take action to preserve large nature areas. John Muir has been considered an inspiration to both Scots and Americans. Muir's biography, Stephen J. Holmes, believes that Muir has become one of the patron saints of 20th century American environmental activity, both political and recreational. As a result, his writings are commonly discussed in books and journals, and he has often been quoted by nature photographers such as Ansel Adams. Muir had profoundly shaped the very categories through which Americans understand and envision their relationships with the national world, natural world, writes Holmes. Muir was noticed for being, noted, excuse me, for being an ecological thinker, political spokesman, and religious prophet whose writings became a personal guide into nature for many people, making his name almost ubiquitous in the modern environmental consciousness. According to author William Anderson, Muir, Muir exemplified the architect type of our oneness with this earth, while biographer Donald Worcester says he believed his mission was saving the American soul from total surrender to materialism. On April 21, 2013, the first John Muir Day was celebrated in Scotland which marked the 175th anniversary of his birth, paying homage to the conservationist. Quite a guy, huh? Quite a guy. Well, didn't work out too well. Things were a disaster, but 
Good luck trying, John. Good luck trying. And you know, you can also go look for, he has written a million books. You know, these people don't write their own books. So if you haven't gotten that idea yet, I'd like to imprint it into your brain that nobody can write this many books and have a microphone in front of them. That's what people don't really catch about controlled opposition. Pretty easy to spot if you open those eyes, kids. If somebody has written a hundred books and they're lengthy books, took a great deal of research, I can tell you that they did not write those books. That is not possible. It's like these people on YouTube who are the crew time people. I don't know that one idiot. You know, they say that he's written like, oh, I don't know, five or six crime books, and plus they've always got a microphone in their hand. Well, things don't add up for a reason. That is not how it works. This is how controlled opposition works. So, John Muir, nice of you, John. Good try. But I would call it a total fail, right? Because I used to believe this stuff. Because I believe that people had some interest in preserving this wonderful planet that we are living in, right? But no, their deal is destruction, right? That is how psychopaths operate. Everything they touch turns to just pure destruction. So anyway, so yeah, that, that's John. So you can look up all of his books if you want. I'm not going to read you the list. But anyway, John Muir, he also came from a very wealthy family, so to speak. So yeah. He came from money, he had money, and he, he, he really connected with the common man. That's why he became John of the Mountains. <laughs> and by the way, people are so broke in this country right now that I just heard today that National Parks, which is a place where people would normally go to um, you know, vacation and camp and stuff, they're, they, they are normally booked, okay? Normally they're booked for the whole summer. They're down by over 40%. And then I have to kind of wonder about these national lands because they, they, they signified all these things as national parks and lands, but then they go around, they drill around them, you know, they sell off parts of them to their rich friends. So I would have to say John of the Mountains was part of the trick. Just my opinion. Think for yourselves, kids. That's how we got here. Not enough thinky-thinky. There's a place I long to be where the air is wild and free. It's a little haven just for me I can let my hair down and be me Just a smile for a start And it only takes a spark To begin the fire in your heart Wouldn't you agree? Hello listener, this is Hachi I hope you are enjoying the show We would like you to consider supporting us So as to keep giving you interesting contents Take a time out to check out the support page on the website and please consider making a kind donation. We would appreciate any little support. Thank you. I grew up have cancer and why can't for the longest time Delaware had the highest cancer rate in the nation. But that's the past. And we're going to get, we're going to build a different future with one, one with clean energy, good paying jobs. Just 15 years ago, Americans generated more than half its electricity from coal, coal fired plants. Today, that's down to 20% because there's a big transition happening. Many of these fossil fuel plants are becoming sites for new clean energy construction. Others are switching to new clean technologies. Look at Brayton Point. Today, Brayton is one of the frontiers on the frontier of clean energy in America. On this site, they'll manufacture 248 miles of high-tech, heavy-duty cables. Those specialized subsea cables are necessary to tie offshore wind farms 
through the existing grid. Manufacturing these cables will mean good-paying jobs for 250 workers, as many workers as the old plant, power plant had at its peak. And the port, the port here, 34 feet deep, was used to carry coal into the power plant. Now we're going to use that same port to carry components of, for wind power into the sea. The converter station here and the substation nearby are the assets that move energy across the power lines. They'll now move clean electricity generated offshore by the wind. Enough power to power hundreds of thousands of homes onto the grid, putting all assets to work, delivering clean energy. This didn't happen by accident. It happened because we believed and invested in America's innovation and ingenuity. One of the companies investing in the factory here joined me at the White House this month, Vineyard Winds, whose CEO told me about the groundbreaking project labor agreements they've negotiated with create good-paying union jobs. And I want to compliment Congressman Bill Keating for his work in this area. I'm also proud to point out that my administration approved the first commercial project for offshore wind in America, which is being constructed by Vineyard Winds. Folks, elsewhere in the country, we are, pro pro we are propelling retrofits and ensuring that even where fossil fuel plants retires, they still have a role in powering the future. In Illinois, for example, the state has launched a broad effort to invest in converting old power plants to solar farms, led by Governor Pritzker. In California, the IABW members have helped turn a former oil plant into the world's largest battery storage facility, the world's largest facility. In Wyoming, innovators are chosen to a retiring plant as the next site for the next generation nuclear plant. And my administration, my administration is a partner in that progress, driving federal resources and funding to the communities that have powered this country for generations. And that's why they need to be taken care of as well. I want to thank Cecil Roberts, friend and President of the United Mine Workers of America, and so many other labor leaders who worked with, this, were worked with on these initiatives. Since I took office, we've invested more than $4 billion in federal funding to the 25 hardest-hit coal communities in the country, from West Virginia to Kentucky to Wyoming to New Mexico. Through the infrastructure law, we're investing in clean hydrogen, nuclear, and carbon capture for the largest grid investment in American history. We've secured $16 billion to clean up abandoned mines and wells, protecting thousands of communities from toxins and waste, particularly methane. And we still, and we're going to seal leaking methane pollution, an incredibly power greenhouse gas that's 40 times more dangerous to the environment than carbon dioxide. And folks, with American leadership back on climate, I was able to bring more world leaders together than we got 100 nations together to agree that the major conference in Glasgow, England, to, I mean, Scotland, to change the emissions policies we have. We've made real progress, but there's an enormous task ahead. We have to keep retaining and recruiting building trades and union electricians for jobs in wind, solar, hydrogen, and nuclear, creating even more and better jobs. We have to revitalize communities, especially those fence-line communities that are smothered by the legacy of pollution. We have to outcompete China and in the world and make these technologies here in the United States not have to import them. Folks, 
When I think about climate change, and I've been saying this for three years, I think jobs. Climate change, I think jobs. Almost 100 wind turbines going up off the coast of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, with ground broken and work underway. Jobs manufacturing 2,500 ton steel foundations that anchor these offshore wind farms to the sea floor. Jobs manufacturing a Jones Act vessel in Texas to service these offshore wind farms. We're going to make sure that the ocean is open for the clean energy of our future and everything we can do give a green light to wind power on the Atlantic coast where my predecessor's actions only created confusion. And today, we began the process to develop wind power in the Gulf of Mexico as well for the first time. A real opportunity to power millions of additional homes from wind. Let's clear the way. Let's clear the way for clean energy and connect these projects to the grid. I've directed my administration to clear every federal hurdle and streamline federal permitting that brings these clean energy projects online right now and right away. And some of you have already come up and talked to me about that. And while so many governors and mayors have been strong partners in this fight to tackle climate change, we need all governors and mayors. We need public utility commissioners and state agency heads. We need electric utilities and developers to stand up and be part of the solution. Don't be a roadblock. You all have a duty right now to our economy, to our competitiveness in the world, to the young people in this nation and to future generations. That sounds like hyperbole, but it's not. It's real. Act boldly on climate. And so does Congress, which, notwithstanding the leadership of the men and women that are here today, has failed in his duty. Not a single Republican in Congress stepped up to support my climate plan. Not one. So let me be clear. Climate change is an emergency. And in the coming weeks, I'm going to use the power I have as President to turn these words into formal official government actions through the appropriate proclamations, executive orders, and regulatory power that the President possesses. When it comes to fighting for climate change, climate change, I will not take no for an answer. I will do everything in my power to clean our air and water, protect our people's health, to win the clean energy future. This, again, sounds like hyperbole. Our children and grandchildren are counting on us. Not a joke. Not a joke. If we don't keep it below 1.5 degrees centigrade, we lose it all. We don't get to turn it around. And the world is counting on us. As this is the United States of America. When we put our hearts and minds to it, there's not a single thing beyond our capacity. I mean it. When we act together, and of all things we should be acting together on, it's climate. It's climate. And by the way, my dear mother, God rest her soul, you say, Joey, at everything bad, something good will come if you look hard enough. Look what's happening. We're going to be able to create as many or more good-paying jobs. We're going to make environments where people live safer. We're going to make the clean the air safer. I, I really mean it. We have an opportunity here. I'll bet you when you see what's happened here in this cable construction here, manufacturing, and you go back and ask all the people who grew up in this beautiful place, 
what they'd rather have. They want the plant back with everything it had or what you're going to have. I will be dumbfounded if you find anybody other than for pure sentimental reasons saying, I'd rather have the coal plant. I'll end by telling you another quick story. When we moved from Scranton, when coal died in Scranton, everything died in Scranton. And my dad wasn't a coal miner. My, my, my great-grandfather was a mining engineer. But my dad was in sales, and there was no work. So we left to go down to Delaware. I told you where those oil plants were. But I remember driving home, when you take the trolley in Scranton, going out North Washington and Adams Avenues. Within 15 blocks, we didn't live in the neighborhood, one of the most prestigious neighborhood in the region, in the, in the, in the town where the Scrantons and other good, decent people live. There was a place, you'd go by a wall that my recollection is was somewhere between 15 and 18 feet tall. And it went for the, essentially a city block. And you could see the coal piled up to the very top of the wall from inside. It was a coal-fired plant, a coal-fired plant. And all of that, all of the negative impacts of breathing that coal, the dust, were affecting everybody. But at the time, people didn't know it, and there wasn't any alternative. Folks, we have no excuse now. We know it. There are answers for it. We can make things better in terms of jobs. We can make things better in terms of the environment. We can make things better for families overall. So I'm looking forward to this movement. Thank you, thank you, thank you. May God bless you all and may God protect our troops. Thank you. say adios or goodbye. Spanish is the only other language besides uh, English that I understand, so that's why I mumble around all the words. Oh, just as a note, I released a couple of shows um, on YouTube. I've been releasing old shows that I did in the past that still have merit. For example, there's no reason to release shows that I covered about Jeffrey Epstein and all the lies and stuff. So. Um, a show that you might want to go over to YouTube and take a look at is called Gaslighting, and it's a one and two part deal. And um, yeah, so you can take a look there. And on some of the shows, I actually have the comments active. And my thinking for that is not that I want to, um, you know, over engage, but I'm willing to engage. You know what I mean? I'm just not willing to, um, you know, just converse with craziness, right? Um, so anyway, so yeah, if you ever want to drop me a comment, you can do it on one of those shows. And because I'm also trying to let people see that I'm over on audio, so I opened up the comments on some of them to see if people would notice that, you know, I have it posted there that I'm only on audio. So just trying my best to make sure people see what's going on. So, you know, I keep talking about next I'm going to work on the movie deal, and <laughs> well, not even close. But, um, 
what I'm working on next is some files that I've been working on for a very long time about my question over where are all these psychopaths actually coming from. I believe they're coming from a few different locations and one location would be in the baby business, right? And um, there's some interesting things going on. I'm a little too tired to get into it right now, but what's interesting is that I've been covering all this IVF stuff. I'm in, I'm in several groups on Facebook and it's a pretty big horror show over there as far as, you know, there's people out in the open, you know, looking for surrogates, people looking to become surrogates, people looking to adopt children, all this embryo business, and it is a pretty horrifying world out there, and I must say, they have good plans to try to trick us with this transhuman thing, but that deal is completely and positively out of control. But I found a link in how it's all working. And interestingly enough, because they signal these things, the movie Rosemary's Baby, which we will have a um, clip of that when we do the show, Rosemary's Baby just happened to have come into our view about the same time IVF was happening. So yeah, a lot of connections there. And I would suggest, I, don't, I only subscribe to about a handful of channels because, you know, why would I care, right? But anyways, one channel that I do suggest for the news about China is a channel called China Insights. He does a really good job of covering all the floods. Now the Chinese are in a big revolt over wanting to stop paying their payments for the fake buildings, they were pay real estate they were investing in. It's a pretty big deal, really huge deal. And what's different about China and here is that if you refuse to pay for your um, bank loans or something, they can they, they tie that to your social credit which will you know punish you in many ways so yeah that's all coming here so China is a very important place to take a look at because everybody here in this country seems to think that China's got all the A1 and all that stuff well we've got it all in this country it's just a cheaper version right I mean the cops are all hooked up through those ring doorbells they, we've got facial recognition already um, there's just been some arguments about whether they should use it, but let's face it, that cat's already out of the bag, okay? So I watched China because China is what's signaling what's com coming down the road for us, so it's important to pay attention to them. So, yeah, next I'll be into the, um, I believe they're breeding some demon babies, and yeah, it, it's pretty, pretty, I mean, it almost feels crazy telling you this, but it's not crazy, trust me, it is a, um, it's something that, I, I, well, I kind of didn't, I, I knew there was something kind of horrific out there. What level of horrificness, wasn't quite sure until I started looking into it more, and I still have a ton more to do, so I'll be back as soon as I can. So, anyhow, I think that's about all I have to say. I'm kind of worn out, so try to help me to help Archie. I need funds so I can help pay Archie. I have never asked for money for myself. I live below the poverty line. My system is shutting down. I'm not well enough to get a part-time job. I used to have part-time work on eBay to support this work. I also was on YouTube in the event that I could raise money from ad revenue on YouTube to pay for my, just all I want to cover is my out-of-pocket expenses. That's all I've ever asked for. And if you remember correctly, I negotiated with YouTube for over a month to get them to release the money that they owed me, and they refused, okay? So that's when I pretty much packed up and left. So. Yeah, it was, you know, I would love to show you the emails of my exchange with, with Google, the, the, the team that I was corresponding with, because at first they told me, we'll remove these shows and then we'll pay you. And then it became this big, big, horrible deal, okay? 
and it went on for about a month. And interestingly enough, um, one day I decided to save the emails over to my personal email account, right? And then I don't know why, but then I thought, well, why am I storing these emails here? Because they're already over on my Google account. Because to have a YouTube account, you have to have a Google email, and that's how they correspond with you, okay, through your Google email. You can't just have this an MSN account. You have to have a Google thing, okay? And so, yeah, so after the, the deal, it became clear that it was a circular deal, and they had no interest in paying me, which is interesting because everybody else seems to get paid the money that they collect on ads on YouTube, but for some reason, you know, psychopaths, behave that way and they've never had much interest in having me talk about who they are so yeah so it's been a struggle but the only reason I'm asking is because Archie is in Nigeria he has been he has been just a resource I can't live without okay I am paying him a very low rate just to get these shows out there I need to pay him more he needs to get prepared for what's going to come Nigeria is going to get hit as hard as anybody else so do what you can to help us I live below the poverty line. I pay for all the audio fees every month. I pay for the server fees and everything else, and I'm not asking you for any of those fees. What I'm asking you for is to help me that I can pay Archie what he deserves to be paid for all this work. So anyways, enough of that. What happened was when I went to um, look at my Google account the next time, my email box, um, all of our correspondence was deleted. Okay, so it's run by them. Okay, so yeah, I, my instincts, this is a lesson in following your instincts, kids, because my instincts were, we'll save all these emails in my own personal account. And then I thought, nah, why bother with that? They're over there on the Google Mail account. Well, they came in and wiped them all out. So I do not have any emails that I could even show you because they deleted them all. Well, how's that happen? Well, quite easily. Just think about it. Okay, so that explains that one. So anyway, so... Be safe out there, kids. Goodbye for now. Hello, dear listener. My name is Achi. I'm from Nigeria. I am the producer of the show. We would like to take this time out to thank you for your continued listenership and support towards the show. However, this past couple of months, it's been increasingly difficult to produce the show. We would like to solicit for your support so as to keep the show running. Please consider any kind donation you can make, big or small. We would appreciate anything that you offer. The donation link can be found on the website. Thank you.